Aquaman and Superman, Animal Man and Plastic Man, Firestorm and Nuclear Man, Batman and Hawkman, 2D Man and Hour Man. Who are all these people, man? They're all part of the DC. Who's who? Booster Boy and Booster Gold, Lightning Lass and Hippolyta, Phantom Stranger, Hitchick and Arisia and Woozy Winks. Hey, hey, hey. What? What about that one guy? What guy? Mr. Pretzel, Mr. Lipstick, Mr. Mitzelfuzzle? Mr. Mitzi's Pitlick? Yeah, him. He's also part of the DC Who's Who. Hello, and welcome to the second episode of Who's Who, Update 88, a proud member of the Fire and Water Podcast Network. I'm one of your hosts, the Irredeemable Shag. Along with me, as always, is my co-host, the esteemed Rob Kelly. How you doing, buddy? I'm doing good, Shag. We uh, haven't done this in a while, so that's fun to do. It's great to get back to Who's Who. There was a new Star Wars trailer today. We got two episodes of Ryan Daly's Give Me Those Star Wars Podcasts on the network, and that's a good day. <laughs> Well, some people at home might be going, what is this network that you speak of? I think they probably figured it out by now. But the last time we did a Who's Who episode, the Fire and Water Podcast Network hadn't even officially launched. And now we're two months later, and it's just cranking away at, like nobody's business. Honestly, that's part of the reason we took the break was we, we needed to get the Fire and Water Podcast Network up and running. Yeah, that's why. <laughs> I needed to. Launching that network about killed me. Thank you very much. But uh, and this show's pretty important to us and the network, so we wanted to be sure we, we gave it the right amount of effort to it in the right amount of time and quite frankly i just you know kept putting it off so but we're here now and the best news of all is that i'm sick and i have a sore throat and i'm the one leading this episode so perfect awesome <laughs> what we're going to do though is we're going to jump immediately to our sponsor folks uh when you do want to take a second to thank our sponsor instocktrades.com instock trades is your best online source for trades hardcovers and other collected editions all for up to 42 percent off with free shipping for orders of 50 dollars or more what do you have rob well in honor of my favorite entry in the book i picked joker clown prince of crime trade paperback this reprints the nine issue joker solo series back when dc thought that <laughs> a murdering clown should be the front and center character of a code approved comic book uh he takes on characters like two-face lex luthor the scarecrow catwoman and uh, the creeper and green arrow Writers are Denny O'Neill, Elliot S. Magan, Martin Pascoe, artists Irv Novick, Dick Giordano, Jose Luis Garcia Lopez, his name, and featured, it doesn't mention here, but also inks by my old instructor, Tex Blaisdell. Ding! Ooh, awesome! That's page fantastic. count, yes, page count is 176. Cover artist is Dick Giordano, which is great. It's uh, normal price $16.99, in stock, page, in stock trades price $9.34, 45% off. It's a really fun book, and it's, a, it's back when the Joker wasn't a complete murdering psychopath and ripped off his own face and stuff like that. He was more fun. So give this, give this book a try. <laughs> he murdered people without ripping his face off. Yes, right. He could just murder people. He didn't need to rip his own face off and stitch it back on. He was old school Joker. So. That's Pick right. It. I picked, uh, in honor of another one of the characters in this book, I picked the Nightwing trade paperback, Volume 1, Bloodhaven. This collects his first four-issue miniseries that they did, written by Denny O'Neill, and then collects the first eight issues of his own ongoing series, written by Chuck Dixon. Yeah, I said Chuck Dixon. That's right. Greg Land did some of the covers here. Interiors by Scott McDaniel. So this is great stuff, folks. If you, if you enjoy Nightwing in the era where he was just getting out on his own, not not with the Titans, but actually genuinely on his own, these were the first stories where Nightwing carried his own title, and they're fantastic. I love these comics. So this collection is 288 pages long, full color, normally goes for $19.99. You can get out in stock trades right now for 45% off, only $10.99. That's a hell of a deal for 12 Nightwing comics by Denny O'Neill and Chuck Dixon? I mean, come on. Really? Why are you wasting your time listening to us? 
go get this trade paperback. For these and all your other trade paperback needs, please visit InStockTrades.com. Oof, all right. So Who's Who Update 88. Well, if this is your first time listening to Who's Who Podcast, welcome aboard. We're glad to have you. The Who's Who Update 88 was a four-issue miniseries, folks. And inside the book, as you flip it open, it's an encyclopedia of the characters. Each character gets pretty much their own full page. In the foreground, you're going to get a full-color image of your character. And in the background, you're going to get what we call, or not what we call, what is called, as we've learned throughout the series of this podcast, a serpent. You're going to see some images in the back sort of describing the powers of the character or some of their history or what they look like, things along those lines. Then you're going to um, get the text pieces, which are going to be like you know your personal data, the height, weight all that stuff, history powers. Anyway, and the goal of this, though, as we go through these entries, the goal is for us to describe it in such a way that you don't actually have to have the comics in front of you. We don't want you to have to be sitting at your desk at work, doing your data entry, lit with your headphones on, and a comic book on your desk, because you know Chad from marketing is going to come over and make fun of you for having a comic book on your desk. We don't want that to happen to you. So, uh, what we're going to do is we're actually going to describe them and then put a bunch of them up on, oh, oh, not Tumblr, no, 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 where are they going to go, Rob? Not the Tumblr. It is at Fire. We can now go to the regular full-on site, which is network site, which is fireandwaterpodcast.com. Woohoo! If, go, uh, if it's not right there on the front page, by the time you listen, go up to Shows, pick Who's Who, scroll down, you'll see the, the entry for the episode, which actually has like the MP3 file, and then below that will be our gallery post, and we'll have probably 12 to 15 different images from this comic up there so you can check them out as we go. How cool is that? One-stop shop. And you can leave your comments up there in the episode. Sweet! It's so convenient. It really is. And actually, folks, this has kind of been the dream all along through since we started the Tumblr for the Who's Who podcast. Rob and I had this vision of having an all-in-one place. And the Who's Who podcast is really kind of what drove us to making a one website for the Fire and Water podcast, which then expanded to the network. So really, it's, it's these damn Tumblr pages which made this whole thing happen. Yeah, the, t- the Tumblr really was kind of ungainly. <laughs> <laughs> so thank you, Tumblr. We appreciate your efforts of being a pain in our butt. So, um, all right, so we are talking about Who's Who 88, volume number two, uh, cover dated September 1988. Folks, uh, you... If you want to get a pristine copy of this off the shelf where the white background doesn't have that sort of eh, little grayish, whitish, you want to get crisp clean off the newsstand, you're going to have to go back in time. You're going to have to get your cosmic treadmill and run back and go to May 24th, 1988. And by the way, thanks to Mike's Amazing World of DC Comics for that information. We sincerely appreciate that. Before I go any further, I should mention... While we're going through this episode, if you'd like to join in on the fun and talk about this on the social medias, up on the Twitters and the Facebooks and the whatever else social medias you want to be on, we do ask you to use our hashtag, which is PoundFWPodcasts, with an S in the end. That way we'll be able to see your posts, we can retweet them, or we can share them, or we can comment, or people can argue with you about Nightwing's disco collar, you know, whatever it needs to be. Make sure to use the hashtag so we can all share in the fun and the conversation. So, Rob... This is the segment where I talk about what was on the shelf in May 1988. And let me tell you, we get to this segment, and every time I'm always amazed at the super cool comics. I'm like, oh my gosh, there's some of my favorites. And it's been that way every month. Maybe not so much this month. But that's okay. (laughs) I'm going to run through them pretty quick. Sometimes we've been like, oh my gosh, Watchmen was on the shelf. Or, oh my gosh, this month, it's like, oh, these are all fun comics. But okay. Captain Adam number 18, which featured Major Force. Doom Patrol number 12, which featured... Gargoax. We love Gargoax. Also featured Karma and Lodestone and Negative Man. Justice League International number 17, which is where they're still infiltrating uh, 
Bayella, I can never say it right, Bayella. And uh, at the same time, Manga, Manga Khan was starting to make some early appearances. Manhunter number three, which features Dumas in the, in the Yakuza. New Teen Titans number 47, which has a computer virus from uh, the Wildebeest and also features heavily Danny Chase. <sighs> Suicide Squad number 16, which features... Nine I'm Chase. saying nothing. Not till we get to the comments. <laughs> Suicide Squad number 16, which features Nightshade's Dimension and uh, Shade the Changing Man's Dimension. Young All-Stars number 16, which features, oh joy, the Dizzying Inheritance with Neptune Perkins and Iron Man Rowe. Can't wait to talk about that. And Lex Luthor himself was featured in three different comics this month. World of Metropolis number 2, Superman number 21, which was the beginning of the Supergirl storyline, the Matrix Supergirl. And Adventures of Superman number 444, again in the Supergirl uh, saga. Uh, which which also feature Lex. So those were all on the shelf that feature characters that we're going to talk about today. First thing we're going to talk about is this beautiful cover that would cost you, by the way, it would cost you five shiny quarters uh, if you had them in your pocket jangling around, plus tax, depending on where you live. Don't pay the sales tax. Just stick it to the man. But anyway, um, cover is by Ty Templeton, same as issue number one. Rob, why don't you walk the folks through the cover real quick? Well, it said, it, as you said, it's by Ty Templeton. It's really beautiful. It's a cheat. Because it features a lot of characters that are only in this book via a team, and that was always something that Huzu kind of didn't do, is if the characters, you know, got their own listings, they didn't appear on the cover as a team. But as Shag pointed out on social media a couple days before recording this, this was the point where DC realized they could put Batman on anything, and that helped it sell. So all of a sudden, (laughs) Batman is the main character when he really shouldn't even be on this cover at all. So mark that in your calendars, folks. Rob always says... DC would never, you've heard him say it, show after show, DC would never miss an opportunity to put Batman on the cover after this. Well, this was when they finally realized, September 1988. There you go. you got to figure by this point, the movie is far into production. Right, so exactly. So they know, they know it's coming. And so all of a sudden, let's just put Batman on, and the Joker, and Nightwing. All the Bat characters, front center on that front, on the front part of the cover. Well, and Batman was selling better in post-crisis, too. Because, like, if you look at some of the sales figures from pre-crisis, the Batman books didn't sell all that well. But in post-crisis, I don't know, they started getting their mojo together. I don't know, the year one, year three, I mean, year one, year two, and uh, Ten Nights of the Beast, all these different things really started getting some heat on the Batman title. By the way, you said it's a bit of a cheat, and I had to do the research because I checked. Because you're right, that was the deal. If they had a team that appeared in an issue... If those characters had separate entries in the book, they wouldn't show them on the cover, right? Well, Batman didn't have an entry in this in Who's Who 88. Neither did Mr. Miracle, neither did Guy Garter, neither did Booster Gold, all of which are snuck in because of the Justice League International entry. Right. So I thought I assumed they all had entries in this book, but none of them do. <laughs> so technically they followed their own rules. But yeah, putting Batman square dead in the center. I mean, Nightwing's even having to lean out from behind him to get, get, to get in the shot. Yeah, yeah, it's it's a cheat. Um, and then speaking of cheats, I love that Ty Templeton avoids the whole how to structure all these characters that they're not floating in air by just putting them all on hollow discs. Yep, just that's that's fine, and they work perfectly fine. I, 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 who cares? They look great. I love. Uh, I, I mean, I love Ty Templeton's work. We've talked about it before. I love that the Joker is riding his little anti-grav disc like it's a scooter or something, mm-hmm. and he's annoying Luthor. I love the way Miss America looks just standing there. She looks. Great. I like when Miss America is like one of those characters that's drawn by somebody really, really talented, like she was on the cover of Secret Origins that uh, Ryan Daly covered by Kevin Nolan. She looks great. Like to me, she looks like that's a winner of a character. 
because she looks great. So I love the way Ty Devilton draws her there. I, th- I think the phrase you're looking for is smoking hot. Well, she does. But, I mean, she just looks cool. Like, she looks yes. iconic. I love uh, Neptune Perkins, kind of herky-jerky pose. Yeah, I, think I, he's sur- I think he's surfing. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, he's got a kind of a surfing thing. I like that uh, Ice is taking on, I guess, Major Force or somebody. I'm not exactly sure who she but she, she's got her back to the camera. I love that Laurie Lamaris is there in her wheelchair. I love the new Guardians are way off to the corner where they belong. Nightshade <laughs> is, all, you know, it's just, it's a great cover. I love these covers that Templeton did. I think they're just terrific. And and mixes Pillick upside down. Yeah, he's adorable. He's not even on a disc, which is adorable. Now, here's a couple of other things I noticed. Do you notice the two little guys in the background behind Miss America and uh, and Neptune Perkins' feet? There's little guys with capes. Yeah. And I'm like, who are they? And I'm like, one guy's got a T in his shirt. One guy's got a Y in his shirt. Oh, it's Ty. He wrote his name. Oh, okay. All That's right. really clever. It took me a minute. I'm like, what is that about? Well, wait. Why he signed it twice then? Because he signed it in the bottom left corner as well. Yeah, I know. He, but he. But that's got to be, and that's the only thing that could be, a T okay. and a Y next to each other. It's got to be his name. And then who is um, right beneath KG Beast? Who's the guy with the snorkel? I have no idea who that is. Uh, I think that's the Newsboy Legion. There was a guy with the snorkel? Maybe. I don't know. I, don't, I didn't think so. No, there's not. <laughs> hmm. I don't know. We'll have to go find Ty Templeton. I, yeah, well, apparently we can. He is online. Yeah. So. I shouldn't mean to say go find him. It's not like he's missing. Search in, I'll search in the couch like loose change. Um, I I do think as much as we picked on him for Batman and stuff like that, I think everyone looks really good. Oh, like everybody Bat- looks Batman terrific. Sure, yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I, Ty has such a clean style, and we'll talk a little bit more about that when we get to the Just League International entry. I want to specifically talk a little bit about him, but it's it's a beautiful cover. The composition is. Uh, uh, some people are very torn in the Ty Templeton covers because it is different than a Perez cover because usually those people don't exist in the same space. And, you know, things are proportionally out of whack or whatever. Here, everyone's sort of in the same space, but as you said, floating on these discs. So it's, it's kind of a different piece, but I love the heck out of this piece. Like, look at Negative Man's face. Just the level of detail on his face looks gorgeous. I like that Captain Adam is flying his disc very ramrod straight. I, like, I dig that. That's cool. Oh, I didn't even notice that. How funny. Yeah. And then there's some fun perspective stuff. Like, at the very tippy top, there's someone's huge feet. Like right I know. I know who, what character that's supposed to be. I was going to be anybody. I just like yeah. that. I just like that he threw that in. It just gives it a sense of depth. Yep. So, great stuff. Awesome. So, all right, folks. As we crack open the book, we go to the inside cover, and we look at the editorial. It's written by um, our editor, Mr. Mark Wade, who calls himself Boy Editor which is adorable. He's got a little caricature of himself. And in the editorial, there's two things I wanted to call out. I don't, if you have anything else after this, Rob, shout it out. But he, he's, he's giving an interesting editorial just about how, putting together, how difficult it is to put together a who's who issue. And he talks about how DC editors, and I quote, weigh as much as a baby grand piano. <laughs> basically saying the Marvel editors down the street are svelte and skinny, and the DC ones are all fat. He literally says it in the piece. It's hysterical. <laughs> He works it all in, and then he gets it to the point where he starts saying how they, how the statistics, you know, they talk about the height and the weight and all that, how they come up with that stuff, and he makes up this thing about how it's really mathematical, and then he goes, nah, never mind, we just guess. And he points out that the KG Beast is apparently um, the same dimensions as Brian Augustine, the editor, uh, minus 10 pounds. So. Right. <laughs> Who knew? <laughs> Anything else before we go on? No, I don't think so. All right. First entry is Ice Maiden, drawn by Tom Artist and... Uh, K.S. Wilson, who, um, uh, I forgot, it's Keith Wilson is actually who that is, but 
Now, I think it's a very nice piece. It's got ice in the foreground. She's got her, uh, or well, I should say Ice Maiden. Sorry, that's worth pointing out. This is the point where she, her name is still Ice Maiden. She hasn't become ice yet because JLI is only on issue 17. Uh, Green Flame and Ice Maiden have only been on the team for a very short period of time. In fact, her powers aren't even that well developed. They do talk about it in here. Her power level is fairly low. Like, at best, she can stop a moving car. That's the only part of her that's not well developed. hey Oh! I can't believe that came out of your mouth. <laughs> so she's in the foreground with her, her blue outfit with the white ice trim. She's got a very sort of um, – the best term I can come up with is like doe-eyed. I don't know if that's the right way to say it, but it looks sort of like big big eyes like a deer would have. And she's got her hair, which is uh, – is that a mullet? Is, is that how you would describe that? I don't it, know if women have mullets. Do women I don't know if they mullets? do either, but you see what I'm talking about? Yeah, it it's, does look like – yeah. Yeah. It's sort of short on top, but it's long in the back. I mean, she's got, you know, it's, it's business up front, party in the back. That's for sure, whatever it's called. And uh, But she she has this way of looking. She's, she's making a little snowman in her hand, and she's bent down on her knees in sort of a sexy pose. So it's sweet and yet sexy at the same time. And then in the Serpent, you get the Justice League standing there with her Batman, um, Blue Beetle, Martian Man, a, a perplexed Martian Manhunter, and what I believe to be... Um, Snapper car who's been dipped in Captain Adam's uh, yellow, uh, metal because uh, it doesn't look anything like Captain Adam. So it's uh, it's a cute piece. Um, but what do you think of it? Um, I'm not that big on it. I mean, I think I like the Ice Maiden pose. I, I think that's fine. Uh, it's got you said it's doe eye to me. It's got kind of a manga look. Uh, but I'm not a big fan of the serpent. Everybody, all the male heroes, like their pants are way high up. <laughs> they all they all look like Fred Mertz, like they all got their belt right under their boobs. So that's just kind of it's like a weird kind of anatomy. And Captain Adam is way too short. It's just a weird pose. And, but but I like her. I mean that looks that looks cool. So I don't I don't mean to speak ill of Tom Artis who is no longer with us, but it's just you know I'm like it's okay. Well, and, and it's interesting because we're going to see that a lot in this issue. Um, and I didn't notice as much in the first one. There's a lot of weak serpent in this issue actually, and it's it's sort of disappointing, but. The Captain Adam thing really does throw me. Like, I don't think that's supposed to be Captain Adam, and maybe the inker made it into Captain Adam. I don't know, because it doesn't look anything like him at all. Size, shape, dimension, anything, other than he's clearly shiny like Captain Adam would be. Right, right. So, But um, she in the foreground, I like it. And again, she's sort of, like I said, sort of, sort of kind of sexy. Now, if you're not familiar with Tom Artis, as Rob said, he's no longer with us, unfortunately. And we'll talk about that more in the feedback. But he did uh, several issues of Secret Origins, and he's done some who's who's for us. And that costume is pretty damn sexy. Very high-cut thighs. Guy Gardner thought it was sexy. I Smart man. Ooh, can't believe I said that, but okay. Uh, up next is Iron Monroe. Now, here's an observation I made, and I didn't think about it last issue, so I can't go back. I'm not going to go back and verify it, but you know, what should, you know what's missing from this entry for Iron Monroe? The word revised. Oh, okay. None of the entries say revised. Oh, okay. Oh, you're right. Yeah, the next one doesn't either. Yeah. Yeah, that's a huge change. Uh, And maybe we just missed it last issue. I'm not sure. Again, I'm not going to go back and look. We'll leave that to you guys. But uh, I was stunned when I realized because I I kept thinking, wasn't Iron Man Rowan the last one? I couldn't remember. So, um, not a lot. Some of these characters I'm not going to spend a lot of time on simply because they were in Update 87 which we covered just a few months ago. So uh, I'll just kind of touch on this at a high level. Iron Monroe, he is the analog for the Golden Age Superman in the Young All-Stars. Art here, by the way, is Lou Mana and Malcolm Jones III. Now, I had to look up Lou Mana and try to figure out what his connection to Iron Monroe was, and it turns out he drew some Infinity Incorporated issues, so that's why he fits. So in the foreground, you've got Iron Monroe uh, in his white pants and his black muscle shirt, 
breaking apart some chains in a very Superman-esque style type pose. He's got his black hair with his white skunk, uh, skunk mark up the middle. And in the serpent, you've got a, a close-up of him. That's a very Superman profile wow. there. I mean, that could be I, Superman and you wouldn't know the difference. Absolutely, because he's got the spit curl. Yep. Wow, I didn't notice that. Yeah, and up, above, up above Iron Man are looking down is... Honestly, what looks like Superman, and that's probably intentional, as Rob was saying, because he is the analog for Superman. So it's almost like Superman is looking down on the one or looking over the shoulder of the one who's taken over for him. You've got an American flag, which the stripes actually shape into an S there at the top. Do you see that, the top of an S? Oh, yeah. I never noticed that, that before. Superman. Right. That was really clever, the way that this guy did this. Way, way to go, Lou. That is clearly the, the beginnings of the Superman S on the, on the flag. Wow. That's really cool. Uh, then you see him uh, battling... Uh, one of the uh, what's her, I can't remember the the Norse Valkyrie from Axis America, and then beneath that you've got a, a little team picture of the young All Stars. So you got Fury and Flying Fox and Huntress and um, ne- ne- Neptune Perkins and Dan the Dynamite and Tsunami. Um, I love the young All Stars conceptually. Like I l- I love this period of. DC history. I know the Young All-Stars didn't turn out like all of us wanted it to. But by golly, it was exciting ideas. The art was awesome at first. I like the character concepts. And I understand that you know people get bent out of shape that the Golden Age Superman's gone and all that. Fine. But m- when you move past that and you accept that and you realize something has to be done, the Young All-Stars was a cool idea to try and make it work. The payoff wasn't there. But I love, emotionally I'm really invested in the way these characters created in their purpose and when i see this little tiny shot in the serpent of them i get so excited like i'm reliving 19 you know 88 all over again i get so excited so i love that i really really do um big thing to point out about this character is he is based on not just superman but a novel this is one of the things roy thomas was really into which was bringing in pop culture and uh, and in fiction like actual serialized fi- or, i mean no- novel fiction he brought in a book called gladiator by philip wiley which was written in 1930 which some would argue Siegel and Schuster actually stole the ideas for Superman from as well. But he, they, by this point, in this origin here, they're telling us now that he has found out he is directly related to the main character in the book Gladiator. That is what's happened, I believe, since the last time we saw his origin. He has found out who his grandfather is, and that is, in fact, um, I'm sorry, father. His father Hugo Danner from the Gladiator book. And you know what? Here's an interesting thing, Rob. When I read that Young All-Stars comic where we found out about Hugo Danner, I actually went to the library checked out the book, and I read it. Wow. Look at that. All right, let's be honest. I had to have my neighbor read it to me because I can't read. But, um, no, actually, I read the book, a book from 1930, and I thought it was fascinating. And if you've never read The Gladiator, uh, and I know Michael Bailey has, but I, I, the rest of you, I, I don't think you have, go go find it. Go read it. It's a good little book. So That's great that Florida has libraries. That's fantastic. Well, I think they borrowed it from another state probably. Okay. But anyway, um, What's your thoughts on that? Well, you know, as someone who didn't read Young All-Stars. As I, I did. Said, well, I did read Young All-Stars. As someone who's never even heard of the Young All-Stars, Rob, what do you think of the century? I think it's fine. I, I agree with you that Young All-Stars in, as a concept is terrific, but it's making the best out of a bad situation. And uh, I just don't think that it really worked. There's, You know, it's just it's one of those things where it was like a noble failure. Roy, Roy tried to salvage what was left of Earth 2 as a, as an idea post crisis, but it just I just don't think it worked. And the entry itself is fine. Uh, I'm not buying the fact that he weighs 162 pounds. 
a guy with that level of muscle and he's only two inches shorter than me, there's no way that I'm like 50 pounds heavier than he is. So uh, that that weight is all wonky. The art is fine. Superman, it is a very Superman pose. Uh, the thing with the S-Shield is cool now that you've pointed it out. Um, I like the logo. Everything about it is, is perfectly fine, but it just, yeah, I'm just kind of like, oh, okay. See, I, 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 I'm... I think we're on different wavelengths a little bit. Like you said, they made the best out of a, a, a bad situation or, or whatever. But like for me, it's they didn't end, they didn't end up making the best because the Young All Stars comic isn't all that great. But it's the concepts were a great result. It's kind of where I'm coming from. No, I no, I understand. I'm just saying. I think no, I think the concepts are, are is the best part. Okay. that's what I'm saying. That's it's like how can I continue to write. Earth two characters without them, these big characters. Oh, okay. Well, we'll do analogs, and that's a great idea. I just think that it, once you start doing it, it just. I just think removing those characters from Earth two just dealt a body blow to the whole concept, and it, that's why Young All Star sort of petered out. I think part of it was, well, you know, part of it was the execution as well. Yeah, I mean, Roy, Roy constantly bringing in other fiction, like Hugo Danner and the Disney yeah. Inheritance we're going to talk about in just a bit, yeah. is what I feel like destroyed. Like, if it, had, if it had been, you know, Ryan Daly recently did an episode of Secret Origins about the JLA origin, where they had to take Wonder Woman out, and they replaced it with Black Canary. And, every, and Rob, you were on that episode. That's right, and, best one ever. <laughs> except for the one right before it on JSA. But they, they um, you guys talked about, basically, they took a bad situation and made a really great comic. Mm-hmm. You know, and this is a situation where they took a bad situation, came up with a great idea, but didn't produce a really great comic. If they mm-hmm. had produced a great comic as well, we might still be talking about the Young All Stars for a while there. You know, for yeah. many many years. Right. Um, they just unfortunately didn't. So yeah, Let, let's um, uh, let's move on, please. We're well, we're given way too much time for Iron Monroe. He did show up later in Damage, and by the way, if you want more on Iron Monroe, you should check out the Tales of the JSA podcast by Michael Bailey and Scott Gardner. Um, and I forgot to mention earlier on, if you want more on Ice Maiden, you should check out a new podcast called uh, JLI, or Justice League International Bwahaha Podcast. Just started on the Fire and Water Podcast Network, and rumor has it, it's pretty good. So I haven't, heard, I haven't heard that. You hadn't heard that? It's a hell of a host, I hear. The guy's mm-hmm. sexy as hell. <clears throat> anyway, next entry is The Joker. By Mr. Kyle Baker. Great logo. Um, very different sort of stylistic version of the Joker. Now, Kyle Baker was a great choice for the Joker at the time. He'd been doing a lot of Joker artwork. Uh, I, I looked up to see what he had actually drawn in comics. I knew they had used a lot of his Joker imagery in merchandising. Yeah. In fact, I owned a watch and wore it from 1989 for probably five years. And it was a watch with a Joker face on it. And it was a Kyle Baker drawing. It wasn't this one, but it was a different image of huge sort of triangular smile on the Joker. And I wore the hell out of that watch. I replaced the band more times than I could possibly think of. But he actually drew the cover to the greatest Joker stories ever told right, prior to this. Right, right, so, um, Basically what this is, it's just a recap of The Killing Joke. Yes, because that's what got published in the meantime was The Killing Joke. So. Yep. Uh, so I don't know that we need to rehash it and, and talk about the Joker's origin or anything. Go read Killing Joke. Make your own determination on it. Or don't go read Killing Joke if you're offended by a lot of the stuff that happens in that. And there are a lot of people nowadays who have, have gotten some distance from the story and have trouble with it. You know, we, we mm. talk, I mean, if you want to hear a very different sort of interpretation of Killing Joke, listen to Stella on Backworld Oracle. They did a, a Killing Joke thing because you think about the impact on Barbara Gordon. 
And, uh, it, I mean, it really makes you think about it. Because when I was a kid, I read it. I'm like, wow, this is amazing. It's great art, really dark storytelling. But then you think about what happens to the people in the story, and it's absolutely horrible, you know? But so this is a recap of the Joker's uh, origin from Killing Joke. I like in the drawing. Uh, so he's, so Joker's got in his left hand an enormous gun, just ridiculously huge, which is a lot of fun. He's got a box of cigars under his arm, but with a wire coiling out of it to a dynamite sort of uh, plunger, which is hysterical. So the cigarette box is actually a bomb, and then there's Batman with this crazy long cape behind him. So uh, what do you think of this piece? It's art-wise, it's my favorite one in the book. Uh, I love okay. Kyle Baker completely unreservedly. I've always I've loved his comic book stuff. I love his book stuff. I read all this. You, know, you are here and why I hate Saturn and you know, all, all the stuff. I, I just think he's great. Huh? Plastic Man. Plastic. I loved his Plastic Man. I saw him once speak at uh, the San Diego Comic Con, and he said stuff that I still quote to this day. I thought it was so profound and interesting, and I, I absolutely just love the guy. I love the artwork. I think this is as much as I like the Marshall Rogers listing. This one to me is a million times better. He's scary and cartoony and weird. I'm not a huge fan that they incorporated the Killing Joke origin, although right in the first paragraph they mention that he remembers different origins for himself at different times. So they kind of get out of that by saying this might be the origin, maybe not. But they are kind of codifying it a little by making it the who's who listing, by giving so much space to it. Um, But that's fine. You know, I mean, that's what they want to do. But the art-wise, it's my favorite one of the book. I remember buying this off the stands, and that one just smacked me in the face. I was like, oh, my God, that's fan-damn-tastic. I just (laughs) love it. I love it completely. Well, it was so different and edgy for DC at the time, you know? I mean, almost, if someone showed you this and said it's a Bill Sienkiewicz drawing from the 80s, you know, I might be willing to buy that and believe it too, just because, and you're more artistic, you probably, maybe you wouldn't, but uh, just the, the, the use of the, the darks and, the, and the, the lines and the shapes and stuff like that, it's that sort of edgy that, you know, when, when he came to Marvel, Sienkiewicz came to Marvel and Baker came to DC, those were just like completely different looks for both those major companies. Yeah. Now, this logo, is this the same logo from the 70s comic? Yeah, it's this classic, classic Joker logo. I love that logo. That's fantastic. Yeah. Yep. So. For more on the Joker, you should check out um, the former, or, or I should say retired podcast, Batman's Bailey Podcast. Or you can visit Siskoid's blog at Geekery. Right now he's doing, uh, or will be doing, some reviews of the Batman animated series. So lots of fun. Everyone loves Batman the animated series. So you can mm-hmm. hear all about Luke Skywalker when he still had two hands. We're going to talk about the Joker. All right. Coming up next is one of the most exciting entries in the book, folks. This is the Justice League International Embassy. That's right. It's a building that they don't even feature in the comics because it's the Metropolis Embassy. Congratulations. Um, art is by, it's basically a blueprint. It's a blueprint of the JLI, JLI Embassy in Metropolis, which normally we see the one in New York or Paris, so I'm not sure why they picked Metropolis, but whatever. It's drawn by Elliot Brown, who I actually met one time. He came into the signing in my town, and um, he is back when he used to do, like, you remember when Punisher would publish those... It'd be like a handbook of all his guns. Yeah, he was a Marvel staffer that did all those kinds of tech drawings and stuff. Yeah. I was kind of surprised to see him in a DC book. Really, really nice guy. I mean, like, crazy nice guy. So Just very friendly. Really liked him. So anyway, um, not a lot to talk about, guys. It's a fun floor plan. You know, you sit here and you look at it and you would be like, hmm, okay. Yeah, let's move on, please. We don't need to spend any time. I do want to mention a couple things, though. I I love that there's a legal library. I love that they have a shared secretary, none of which we ever saw any of those things in the show. And probably the most important thing to point out is there's no pool. So they're not planning on any Aqua-based characters to be part of the Justice League, you know? Mm Mm-hmm. 
See how well that worked out for him. And then, for more than the Justice League International Embassies, please check out the Justice League Bwahaha podcast. Oh boy, this worked out for you, didn't it? Just a little bit. Coming up next. Oh, look at that. It's the Justice League International. Do they have a podcast? They might have a podcast. Anyway, uh, it's drawn by Ty Templeton. I love this image. A lot of other people don't. I think it's a lot of fun. Now, the, the, the background's a little odd. because uh, Okay, so what do, you, what do you do? Up on the left-hand side and the right-hand side, you have all a bunch of faces. And rather than classic JLA style where all the faces are lined up and they're looking straight forward or looking someplace, they all kind of have a unique thing going on. And they're, and they're askew. Some of them are overlapping. And they actually have their name handwritten in the margin next to them which I just think looks adorable. I think it's just got a, a cute, friendly look to it. you got Rocket Red, uh, Nort, Captain Atom, Blue Beetle 2, Mr. Miracle, Booster Gold, Ice Maiden, Martian Manhunter, Green Flame, Batman, and Guy Gardner. And uh, so in the image in the center has everyone, they're just kind of hanging out in the embassy. You've got you know Rocket Red's talking to Nort, Captain Atom's flying around, Mr. Miracle's floating, Blue Beetle looks like he's trying to explain something to somebody, Booster Gold's confused. Both Fire and Ice are either fawning over Martian Manhunter or they're just smiling at each other. I'm not sure. Guy Gardner's floating in a chair and Batman's back there. So the only detractor I would say is that the placement of the characters is a little dull. But beyond that, I think, I think everyone looks wonderful. They look adorable. What do you think about this? All right. Um, uh, you can I, be brutal. That's yeah, fine. A lot no, of I'm going like to be brutal. I love Ty Templeton, as we know. I've said nothing. But I, I don't think this is an appropriate entry for the premier team of the DCEU. I like this approach when they did it for Forever People. We, you and I waxed Forever People's oh, giant, yes, giant space buggy. Uh, I just don't. I, to me, this is just too cutesy for the Justice League. And I know this is the funny version of Justice League and all that stuff, but I just, I, I just feel like, mm, no, I wanted to see something a little more quote-unquote serious for Justice League. So the artwork is great. Everything about it is great. I love Templeton. It, there's nothing wrong with the artwork. I just think if I was the DC editors, I would have not have gotten Ty Templeton to do it. I would have gotten somebody a little more standard superhero-y, but okay. Well, I at this point, they were pretty firmly established, because they're on issue 17 at this point, as being sort of a workplace comedy. So not mm-hmm. having yeah. them in the in an action pose makes sense. Now, my, my staple goes right down the middle here, and I can't really see, like, like guy, uh, I'm sorry, Martian Manhunter's stomach actually goes into the staple. Chris Franklin left a message on one thing I was seeing recently where he talked about how Martian Manhunter is fat in this entry. I can't see his stomach. Is he, can you see his stomach? No, I can't. He, no, he disappears into the, the fold as well. Okay. Because he was just—he was making jokes about David Ogden Styers playing Martian Manhunter, <laughs> and it, the inspiration came from this entry because Martian Manhunter was a was hefty in this one. But anyway. Chris was not disparaging David Ogden Styers, was he? Um, I think he was disparaging this. This well, you, we should just move on. Anyway, um, I gotta talk. To him. I, we're gonna have a network meeting. Um, so here's what I'm thinking: DC was going for. Because, again, I'm pleased with this entry, especially the heads. What, what do you think about the heads? Let's, let's change the tactic. Let's talk about that. I, I think it looks great. I just, like I said, it's just, to me, it's just too silly for the Justice League. But, again, I know that that's what the book was at that point. And I like the book. I love the book. I just wish, I wish they had maybe done something similar to the previous Justice League entry where it was a history of the JLA with all the members, not just the current ones. 
Okay. Well, folks, this is why Rob won't appear on the Just League International podcast till like episode 30. But anyway, uh, I, if, if you just focus on the faces and you look at the facial expressions, everyone's got a very clear facial expression. There's a lot of what I would call acting going on. Like you look at, you look at Mr. Miracle and he's sort of mischievous and happy and having fun. And, you know, Batman's trying to bring but it's not working and fire like, oh, look, what's over there? Everyone, you, you see something going on in the face of each character. And what what's the wheels that have started rolling in my head here? This is before Ty Templeton had actually taken over drawing Justice League. So he does take over drawing the book pretty soon after this, but this is before that. So I, I wonder if DC maybe thought they were onto something with Kevin McGuire because everyone recognized right from, out of the gate that Kevin McGuire's facial expressions were extraordinary. And maybe what they were going for was a guy who also could really do exceptional facial expressions, which, again, I think Ty Templeton is, is good at. And um, another one would be Eric Shanauer, the guy who did that Justice League um, Secret Origins you guys talked about. Mm-hmm. You know, same, sort of, same sort of feel, same sort of essence. I'm wondering if maybe if that was something DC was trying to capture, uh, but no one could I mean, no one could be another Kevin McGuire. He was just too fantastic. So, I don't know. Um, and up to this point, Ty Templeton really had just done the covers for Who's Who. He did a little bit of Booster Gold, some Independence, and he did the Secret Origins with the Blue Devil. That was really it. So, <laughs> well, I guess we'll have to agree to disagree. I enjoy the entry. So, all right, all right. And people, you know where to find more on those guys, right? <laughs> There's going to be a quiz later. Up next is Karma by Eric Larson. So this is a character from the Doom Patrol. This guy is. <laughs> He's sort of silly looking. So he's got the Doom Patrol, you know, like costume, which is, you know, a, 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 like a white suit with like piping that's, in this case, looks like maybe a pink or a purple and boots and stuff. But over the top of it, he's wearing a cut off leather vest, which is hysterical. And he's got this enormous mohawk and the sides of his head are shaved. And he just, he's got that typical, you know, 80s tough guy look with a spike collar and stuff. I find it hilarious. He is, he is misnamed in this. His name is listed as Wayne Tarrant, which we talked about last episode when we did Doom Patrol. It is not Wayne Tarrant. It's not supposed to be. It's supposed to be Wayne Hawkins. Wayne Tarrant was a friend of Blue Devils. Um, well, before I go any further, Rob, what do you think of this piece? Based on his own descriptions, I'm going to bet this is what Ryan Daly looked like when he was a teenager. <laughs> he talked about that he was kind of like that. He was like a real punky kind of kid, you know, like he was rebelling and stuff. And like he appeared on the last, uh, not the last episode, but a recent episode of my Pod Dylan show. And he talked about how like he got invited to a concert with his parents and he wouldn't, he's like, I'll go, but I won't sit with you. And like he was just one of those kinds of kids. So I imagine this is what he walked around with like a vest with the sleeves ripped off. And th- th- that's my vibe here. <laughs> Whether he so, had superpowers, I don't know. But Rob says nothing about the art and just talks about Kyle for a while. It's I, perfectly I, fine. Not I, Kyle, I'm not sorry. a huge fan right. of Eric Larson. I think this character is doofy looking. Uh, the 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 print is nice. Like that portrait is done. I there's, love that. It's really the, good. There's a nice little uh, the little craft tint effect that Eric Larson loses, so that's really nice. But the the character itself just doesn't do a whole lot for me, even though it's a creation by Paul Coverberg. I th- I gotta say this. I think this artwork is very controlled for Larson. Mm-hmm. Larson's stuff usually gets kind of crazy, and like you said, that that face, the the portrait of the face is really really sharp, and the artwork even on the bottom with the you know the big alien trying to hit Karma and misses. I I think the artwork's really kind of stands out in this one. I, as as goofy as the character looks, I think artistically it's really well done. So the Karma's power, the way it works is he has a power basically you can't hit him. As long as he's aware you're trying to hit him, he does. He sends out some sort of pulse, and you miss him. That's his power. And uh, 
I, I just I don't know that the character is really that interesting, but I think I like the artwork, and I'm not even a big Eric Larson fan, so I'll give you that. For more on Karma, folks, check out the Waiting for Doom podcast, which is awesome about Doom Patrol, and our buddy Doug Zewish's blog, My Greatest Adventure 80. There we go. Up next, KG Beast. What is the greatest name? I love that. That is such a brilliant name. Now, Rob, what is KG Beast's connection to Aquaman? Uh, well, he, he, what is his connection to Aquaman? Hmm. What? What is it? He trained another. Oh, the NKV demon guy who fought Aquaman. Yes. All right. Very good. I love it when they play on those names like the NKV demon. That got a little too QC. That one got a little much. I KG Beast I like, but NKV demon just doesn't roll off the tongue the way KG Beast does. (laughs) So, uh, can you tell me where KG Beast has appeared in live action? In live action. Yeah. Where was he in live action? I don't know. Was he where 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 did he appear? He must BV- have he must have been on green on arrow. BVS. He was Is the guy he- with the flamethrower. The guy with the tattoo. Is he uh, really? He was like the main mercenary guy. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yep. I know. Your favorite movie. Um, let's move on. Let's, please, let's move on. <laughs> so, one of my other things I like to think about when I think about KG Beast is the initials KGB, which is Keith G. Baker, one of our good buddies. Anyway, uh, KG Beast was introduced in a very interesting storyline called Ten Knights of the Beast, where he had come to Gotham and had killed over a hundred Gotham folks. Just horrible. And then, at the end of the story, <laughs> check this out. They fight in the sewers. And Batman, like, KGB sort of, like, gets trapped in this narrow little room or area inside the sewers. And Batman just locks him in and walks away, folks. He leaves KGB in there to die. So, next time you have an argument about whether Batman kills or not, remember this one. By the way, I didn't even talk about the art. It's Jim Aparo. You want to describe his costume? It's very nice. It's uh, KGB is definitely would fit in at a leather bar. There's no <laughs> doubt about that. I mean, base of operations, uh, the toolbox. There's no doubt about that. He's got a giant gun on his arm. He's got the brass knuckles with spikes on him. He's got some nunchucks. He's got some Chinese throwing stars on his belt, which makes it got to be hard to do sit-ups. Uh, he's this massive dude. He's 6'3", 231. He's famous for getting involved in this fight with Batman where Batman wrote where uh, Batman gets a rope around his arm, and KGB showing how tough he is, cuts his own arm off to free himself from Batman. Why he couldn't just cut the cord instead of his own hand, that's maybe a discussion for another time, but you know, we, didn't, we didn't say the KGB is a smart guy. He's just a tough guy. I love the, in the serpent that image of his, him in the mask, the luchador mask. That's great. I mean, it's really well drawn. It uses blacks in the, in the highlights. I mean, it's a wow. very solid pair of drawing, no doubt about it. Very mass. I mean, the costume is ridiculous. It makes Bane look tame, his costume. Uh, but uh, artistically, it is rendered really, really nicely. So, uh, again, for more Batman goodness, check out the old episodes of Batman's Bailey, our Bailey's Batman podcast, and our buddy Siskoid's coverage of the animated series. <laughs> I would listen to Batman's Bailey podcast. That would be a great show. <laughs> so, Michael Bane. Exactly. <laughs> what did you eat for breakfast on Tuesday, June third? As you know, he can remember that stuff. <laughs> great. I really, sh- I really shouldn't do that with my voice right now. <laughs> It's lucky it's held out this long. All right, up next is Lex Luthor. Not Lex Luthor 1, not Lex Luthor stinking 2, not Lex Luthor flipping 3. It's just Lex Luthor. Thank goodness. Forget all that nonsense with all those numbers. It gets confusing. Too many Roman numerals, folks. Anyway, uh, this is drawn by, oh, who's this? Jose Luis Garcia Lopez. Praise Praise be his name. name. (laughs) 
Luther's in the. Uh, this is Luther during his businessman years. He's uh, you know the Wilson Fisk kind of era where he's he's a larger man. He, he's actually his, his head is thicker. He's got kind of jowls. He's not a skinny man. He's a broad man, and he's in his suit and he's raging f- with his fist ra- or his hand raised up with his mechanical ma- hand, and he's angry. And he's in a suit and he's got a cigar going, and he's just mad at mad at the world here, Lexus, and. Uh, you know, one thing I kind of forget during his rich era, I do forget that he was still a very brilliant inventor because there was so much focus on him running his businesses that you forget that he was also a brilliant inventor. Worth mentioning. So this version of Lex grew up in Suicide Slum, uh, and one of his childhood friends was actually Perry White. And the whole deal, if, if you never read Superman Man of Steel, shame on you. Get off my podcast right now. But if you decided to hang around after my shaming um, – Basically, the origin of why Lex hates Superman is he, Lex used to be the most powerful man in Metropolis. And when Superman came on the scene, Lex threw this big party on a yacht. And what he did was he purposefully told his security – when he heard the yacht was going to be attacked, he purposely told his security guards, kind of hang back a bit. We're going to see if Superman shows up to save us. Sure enough, Superman did, showed up, saved everyone. Then people found out that Lex actually endangered all of them by telling the security guards to sort of lay back. And the mayor insisted Superman arrest Lex Luthor. Now, Lex Luthor – was never uh, was uh, so he was never charged. Is that right? He was never convicted. So Lex has always managed to this version of Lex. The big deal is he commits crimes all the time, but he's never actually convicted for them. And after that situation where he got arrested, he was so embarrassed and so angry that Superman was now quote unquote more powerful than him. He uh, he was desperate to be, become the most powerful man in Metropolis again, and that's what motivated this version of Lex. He wore a kryptonite ring for a while, so he ended up um, the radiation from the kryptonite ring actually destroyed his hand. He had to chop it off, and that's why he's got this robotic hand. Um, what do you think about this era of Lex? Oh, I liked it. I mean, the drawing, of course, is killer. I love I love the pose. I love the, sort of the action lines on Luther's pants pointing up kind of towards his face. I love this the little um, zipatone print on his vest. Uh, the, be- the 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 um, portrait is great. Him standing around in the background with his feet up on the desk, laughing at Superman is <laughs> fantastic. No, I really like this Luther. I mean, look, there wasn't too much else left to do with mad scientist Superman, uh, Luthor, you know, the one with the battlesuit Luthor. So this was a perfectly logical way to go with the character, and I thought it was uh, really good. I love the, the story. I've mentioned this before, but the, the story where Lex figures out through his research that Clark Kent is Superman but then doesn't believe it because he's <laughs> like nobody would pretend when they could be that powerful. No one would pretend to be a regular schnook. That's ridiculous. So I love that Luthor can't see past his own nose. I think that was fantastic. I think it's great, a wonderful entry. It was a great era, all the burn era, and then the stuff they did with Luther after Burn was was very good as well. So, for more on this era of Lex Luthor, check out from the From Crisis to Crisis podcast with Michael Bailey and Jeffrey Taylor. So, up next, this is a weird one, folks. Uh, Little Boy Blue and the Blue Boys, drawn by Gordon Purcell. Now. Um, <laughs> It's these little boys, little kids, and they're in you know these ridiculous sort of blue. It's they're gold, they're modern age revamps of golden age characters. Is what it is, and uh, you know two guys are which are the boys blue are basically in all blue outfits. They've got a mask over their head, so their eyes and and hair is covered, and with like a long sort of almost like a nightcap sort of long tail. And the other guy is wearing blue, but he's also got like yellow and red accents with a red hood and a baseball bat. And they're basically kids that are going to go out and save the day. They're like the little rascals in costumes. Um, you've got, let's see, uh, one guy's name is Static, one kid's name is Slats, the other guy is Little Boy Blue, uh, and these are actually the children 
of the original Little Boy Blue and his Blue Boys from the Golden Age. So, Rob, uh, I don't remember. The, the, these kids premiered in the Flash series, the, the Wally West Flash series. Are, do you remember, other than them being in Who's Who, anything about these guys? No, I mean, I remember seeing reprints of the original characters. The fact that this doesn't mention that they're revised confused me because I was like, wait, these yes. are Golden Age characters, and yet it mentions Dr. Light, which is, again, the ongoing uh, uh, humiliation of Dr. Light, that he's been reduced <laughs> to fighting Little Boy and Little Boy Blue and the Blue Boys. Uh, and then it said first appearance Flash number 12. I was like, wait, that's not right. They, they're from the 40s. So, yeah, I, I don't remember this. I read Flash for several years. I don't remember them being in the Flash book, so I just was like, okay, I guess they were. I, I didn't have any memory of that. I uh, I had to do a little research on it because I, I, I remembered seeing them in Who's Who, but I, I think they got half a page, which, by the way, they do not merit a full page here. Uh, artistically, it's a very cute drawing. The three kids there in their costumes, one's got his little you know walkie-talkies, the other kid's got his skateboard, his knee pads, the other kid's got his baseball bat, and then the three little inset faces. It's Artistically, it's a very cute drawing. I just don't think it merited a half page, I mean a full page. And so anyway, I did the, uh, the looking up. The, the original Little Boy Blue and his Blue Boys actually appeared in Sensation Comics number one. One. Wonder so, Woman, wow. Yeah, we're, we're talking way back. Guess how long they stayed around? And you know that's a loaded question. Yeah, I know. I'm gonna, I, so whatever my answer is, it's going to be not right. So I'm going to say they lasted a long time. Okay. What's a long time? Like, I don't know, like several years. Give me a number of, of issues. All right. They finally wrapped up in, let's say, Sensation Comics number 73. 82. Very Look close. Look at Oh, almost. That was, that, was, that, was the, that was the best you've ever done on one of these things. Because <laughs> it's always a loaded question. 82 issues these guys appeared. That's insane. So, uh, and, you know, obviously there was something to them. So, um, so then they appeared in The Flash, and uh, they had... What? I'm sorry. I'm trying to figure out what my notes say. Well, if you want to learn more about them, you should listen to Van Z's Little Boy Blue podcast called Boo Balls. Oh, my God. <laughs> I've just been waiting for you to stop talking so I could say that. Okay. Uh, okay. Basically, they had just been introduced <laughs> in The Flash. I figured out what my notes said. They had just been introduced in The Flash, and that's why they put them in here. Uh, I was actually going to recommend not that particular podcast, but one from the same gentleman, Al Gerding. They're, He's reviewing tons of Golden Age comics on his All-Star Comics uh, review podcast. I love that show. Al Gerding. His enthusiasm for those Golden Age stories is so much fun. And honestly, I think I enjoy listening to him describe the stories more than I do reading them sometimes. So, Well, I, I have a hard time reading Golden Age stories. No, that's really... true. I was laughing because I think that's right. I think there's some yep. stories where you're like, yeah, it would be better if somebody tell me what it says than actually <laughs> having to it. It's like, uh, didn't, uh, didn't Roosevelt used to read the Sunday comics on the radio? Not Roosevelt. Uh, Mayor Filoelo LaGuardia used to read oh, it. Oh, okay. Yeah, New York gotcha. City, yeah. So, uh, so d- yeah, check out Al uh, Al's podcast. It's a lot of fun, folks. All right. Up next is Lodestone, the hottie of the Doom Patrol. Here in her pic- in another Eric Larson drawing, this time inked by Jim Sa- Sanders, and she's uh, you know very large in the foreground. She's looking up at us. Cool she's pose. Got her arms. Yeah, she's got her arms raised and her head back in like a very gleeful expression. She's wearing the typical Doom Patrol outfit, which is like the white bodysuit, but then it's got pinkish purple along the sides, each on the left and the right side, and uh, she's got huge poof of red hair and then sort of like a really long sort of warrior braid of red hair and she's Rhea Jones is her real name and she is you know a gorgeous and uh, it's, I, I think it's funny did you read did you notice her relatives 
Her relatives are Major Jones is her father, and her mother is Mrs. Jones. <laughs> yeah, well, pretty it's much. A creative yeah. Rather than saying unnamed parents, that's a clever way to get around it, I suppose. So, her, so she's had sort of a tragic past. Her father's in the military. He's up on a base in the Antarctic, or in the Arctic. Her mother dies. She goes to find her father. He's in the middle of a, a, a science experiment gone wrong. He's about to die. She gets trapped in this experiment place in the Arctic and gains all these magnetic powers. So she can, she's she's got magnetism. She she can then use in different ways to make her strong, to make force fields, to fly, to leap. And uh, probably one of the most important powers is her costume uh, that makes her super hot. So, you know, I'm good with that. She went off and joined the circus, which is like such a funny old school idea. It's like joining the circus. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> so in the surprint, she's whacking somebody really good. I can't tell who it is. Uh, I hope it's Reactron, though. And then in the foreground, she is dropping somebody with a giant awesome mustache like somehow using her gravity powers to crash the guy into the ground. Now, it's funny. If you listen to the Waiting for Doom podcast, they cover this era of the Doom Patrol comic. And it's just funny when they get to her, they talk about her, how she'll be wearing like – there's a, a scene where she's working out and she's wearing nothing but butt floss, which of course got my attention. Uh, and it just it's just funny to hear the guys describe her. So uh, Now, Graham Morrison did go on to do some interesting things with her character in his run. But for the most part, she's pretty much just disappeared. So, um, Any thoughts on her, Rob? Not particularly. I didn't. I don't remember her. I know I read Doom Patrol during this era. I just don't remember anything from it. So I mean, but again, I like the pose. Like so many poses are straight on because that's just so much easier to draw. It's really very difficult to do a figure foreshortened like that. But uh, Eric Larson pulls it off. And it was interesting. This is I mentioned before. Karma was a very controlled sort of Eric Larson. This is not what I would consider a controlled Eric Larson. This looks like Eric Larson artwork. This looks like something you would see in Savage Dragon or something, whereas the other one looked very much like uh, he'd really put a lot of effort into that drawing in a, in a different sort of way from a classical artist. She looks like she's enjoying being a superhero. She's walking on sunshine. <laughs> walking on sunshine. Yeah. Shag, please let the professional singer that. handle this. Please, come on. Uh, I hope you're not talking about yourself. Because <laughs> <laughs> professional means you've been paid, and, I, and other than someone paying you to shut up, I can't imagine anyone paying you to sing. A, um, I have sang on this podcast. B, we get money for this podcast. C, I'm a professional singer. Therefore, I technically was just professional a moment ago, wasn't I? I didn't all say right. you weren't. Up next is the most exciting logo of all of who's who ever, the Lords of Chaos and Lords of Order, which is essentially just a font. So um, this is... This, this entry is very, I would think, probably very divisive because <laughs> artistically it's pretty dull. The Lord, but that's because that's the way they, they're drawn. The Lord, it looks exactly like doing a comic, so you can't fault them for that. I mean, the Lords of Order are basically just a glowing blob, and the Lords of Order Chaos are basically just like a giant slug with teeth. That's kind of, or a turd with teeth. That's kind of what, how Keith Giffen drew them. And in this case, art is by Keith Wilson. And uh, he's. His background, I tried to look it up, like, see where his connection was to this stuff. He's did a variety of different stuff, so, I mean, he, he doesn't fit perfectly with one of these Dr. Uh, Fate-type characters, but whatever. He, he did a fine job. So the reason why I say it's divisive is the Lords of Order and Chaos, you either like it or you hate it. And based on the comments I see in the Who's Who podcast, there's a lot of people that hate this stuff. So, forgive me, I find it fascinating. So... Uh, the guy did – Keith did a great job drawing just like uh, – Keith Wilson, I should say. Did a great job drawing just like Keith uh, Giffen. Now, they list the first appearance as the first appearance of Dr. Fate, which was what? Morphorgan Comics number 55, which in my opinion is a, is a total cheat. 
Because they don't mention the Lords of Order and Chaos at that point. Now, Naboo appears, sure, but we didn't know he was a Lord of Order and Chaos. The Lords of Order and Chaos didn't actually get mentioned until, I want to say, the 1970s. It was in one of those retellings of his origin. I can't remember personally whether it was in The Flash or whether it was in the DC special or, or what. Um, it wasn't first issue special, but it was one of those retellings of Dr. Fate's origin in the 70s. Uh, uh, Kylo Benning, and I covered it on uh, one of the episodes in Firewater Podcast. But anyway... Uh, Okay, according to Indian philosophy, which is what they're following here, magic runs in four different ages, and they're called yugas. And the way it works is the first one, order's in charge, and the second one, chaos sort of starts to come in. The third one uh, becomes a war between chaos and order, and in the fourth one, chaos actually wins and takes over. And at the end of that fourth age, which is called Kali Yuga, when that fourth age ends, the universe is destroyed and is reborn, and the whole cycle starts over. And this is important because in Crisis of Infinite Earths, they say that humanity entered, was, began the fourth age. So we began the Kali Yuga, which means chaos was going to reign supreme, right? Bad mojo for us. Well, here's where it gets interesting. The Lords of Order, which is like Dr. Fate's type people, they decided, screw it, let chaos win. We're going to let them win so we can get the Kali Yuga this age over quick and let everything restart so order can be in charge again. So they decided to accelerate the whole process by basically surrendering and letting chaos win. Well, if they do that, that means the whole universe is going to end. And guess what? That's where I keep all my stuff, and that's not cool. So Dr. Fate and the other Lords of Order that were sort of active say, whoa, 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 no way, we're not giving up, we're not going to quit, we're not going to stop fighting chaos. So that's sort of the, the pull of, of uh, what their story's coming from. Dr. Fate's raging against his own people, against the Lords of Order, because he wants to continue to fight to protect the, the universe from the Lords of Chaos. And then they, and they sort of name-check some different folks, like they say Eclipso is an agent of chaos, they say Amethyst is an agent of order, Dr. Fate's an agent of order. Uh, we find out, and not in here, but a couple years later, Kid Eternity is an agent of chaos, unknowingly. So, um, did you have a feeling on any of this Lords of Order, Lords of Chaos stuff, Rob? No, this stuff just always left me cold, and this drawing is like, come on. <laughs> Keith, Keith, Keith Wilson's like, you know what? I can draw something as minimal as Keith's given and get paid for it. Watch this. Hey, colorist, do a color hold on the left-hand side. I'm going to draw this little... <laughs> I'm going to draw this little ugly little spermicide creature with teeth and call it a day. Yeah, I, this, please, can we just move on? Okay, fair enough. Thank For you. For more on Dr. Fate, though, check out the Lords of Order podcast by our buddy Ed Moore. Considering so. what's next, I can't believe you spent that much time on these characters. Up next, a naked chick. Exactly. I would think you would have jumped at the chance to get to this. <laughs> I'd jump on her. John Byrne drawing a naked fish chick. <laughs> Folks, it's Lori Lamaris. It's a very interesting drawing, too, because... I, don't know, I suspect that maybe this drawing was intended to be smaller because the lines, it's really thick line work for John Byrne. I mean, if you look at like her arms and her torso and stuff, John doesn't usually draw with lines, draw with lines that thick. So I, I wondered if this was maybe a smaller image that got blown up. I don't know. But anyway, in typical John Byrne chick uh, fashion, she's super hot. And so she's naked up top. Thank goodness for that. And on the bottom, she's just got a green fish tail. And uh, I, I love how str how straight that green line is. Like it's a skirt like she's pulled on or something. But So um, we learn a little about Lori Lamaris. We learn that, you know, in college she was on land. She was in a wheelchair. She'd cover up her legs. She went to university because her people were trying to find Atlantis. Uh, she had a little romance with Clark Kent. Years later, she's back in the sea. Uh, she 
meets Superman, and he knows where Atlantis is now because Aquaman told him. And um, then somehow Laura Lamaris gets injured by some crazed fisherman, and she goes to the Aqua Hospital and falls in love with Ronald, which is um, so, sort of what they're doing is sort of taking the pre-crisis version of Laura Lamaris, mixing it with a little bit of John Burning of the post-crisis uh, Laura Lamaris, and getting to kind of the same point where she's married to Ronald. So uh, was I, I haven't actually I either haven't read this issue of the post-crisis Superman, or I just don't remember it. Was Aquaman actually in it, or did he just refer to Aquaman? Uh, they were, he's in, like, one panel. Oh, yeah? Yeah, okay. he's a flashback, and I think he even has, like, his logo and stuff. Yeah, yeah, that I, I remember this issue. I, I can never I can never get over the idea of, like, R- Ronald. Like, I would not want to date one of Superman's ex-girlfriends. Because, right, totally. Because, A, you would never hear the end of it. You know, well, my explorer, he could go back in time. And you're like, oh, all right, great. <laughs> and then you'd be afraid that, like, if Superman gets mad at you again, he can microwave your insides from, like, the other side of the planet. So I would yeah. just always be nervous. Well, I mean, yeah, the day Superman decides he wants her back. Exactly. You're you're screwed. You're absolutely yeah. screwed. And, you know, Superman's very tolerant. I mean, I'm all for, you know, love the love who you love. But, man, he's really open-minded that he's willing to date a half-fish woman. That's, that's – <laughs> A lot of people so, can't get over someone who smokes, let alone so, someone who's, you know, half, half mackerel. So is the guy who's dedicated his life to Aquaman. So, um, by the way, Ronald's name is – his middle name is Constellation Prize. By the way. <laughs> so how do you feel about – you know, as a guy who does Aquaman stuff, how do you feel about Laurie Lamar's? Um, I think it's fine. It's – you know, it, it's, it, it's probably a little too much for the Superman universe to withstand – in terms of its fanciful <laughs> concepts that, oh, he just happens to meet a friggin' mermaid, you know? <laughs> it, it worked better in the 50s and 60s, but I think Byrne made it work well enough. I think when she gets knifed in the back or whatever that happens, that's a little a little heavy. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, it's it's fine. It's silly. She's certainly beautiful to look at. And, you know, I don't normally talk this way, but I can't help but notice it. Byrne gives Lurie a giant rack. I mean, she is <laughs> huge. I mean, it could be the way it's drawn because they're in motion a little. I mean, it's a really great drawing. But, uh, again, I just can't – it's like, how did Superman romance this girl? How long – did he just never make a move and never noticed what's – the flapping going on? I don't I don't understand. But it's uh, – her tail. That's what we're talking about. But anyway, it's 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 a great drawing. I wish he had gotten a, a decent logo. That's a, just a very boring typeface logo. I wish they had maybe mm. done something a little more – cool but uh, nice drawing though it's it's burned doing superman i love that stuff yep it's very very pretty so all right up next is major force with an exclamation point that's probably taken (laughs) it's probably taken from a cover so we we've sort of discovered that anytime there's an exclamation point unless it's a a zoo crew character it's like it came from a cover somewhere uh major force who's uh this drawn by brad venkata and i had to look him up in Interesting that he doesn't really done many comic books at this point. He did a little bit of Femme Force, but he's mostly known as an inker and a colorist. So him as a penciler isn't something that's that well known. And you can kind of see it here when you look at it. I mean, it's it's not the greatest drawing. I'm not trying to be a jerk about it, but it's, uh, you know, the, the Captain Adam's face when he's getting punched and his head's turning sideways doesn't look quite right. The anatomy's wonky. It's a bit stiff. Yeah, yeah. it's not one of the great drawings. But it's not terrible because, I mean, it's, it's a character that I can't stand anyway, so it, it works out well. <laughs> I, I love that his last name is Zemeck, Z-M-E-C-K. It's just it's a name you don't want to like. The gist of it is, if you know your post-crisis Captain Adam in origin, you know, he, he was in trouble with the military. He volunteered for a secret project where they exposed him to this alien metal and a nuclear explosion at the same time, and it made him jump him forward in time 20 years. Well, a year after they did it to Captain Adam, they did it with another guy. 
uh, a guy, like a psychotic guy who had murdered this woman. They did the same exact experiment, just happened to be this guy, and he ends up becoming Major Force. So he's essentially sort of almost like a dark mirror of Captain Adam. He's uh, a military guy who, uh, I think he's a military guy, I should say that. I should be careful where I say that. Yeah. Um, yeah. He, uh, anyway, so he gets turned into, he's the same kind of powers, but very, very powerful. And um, there's... <laughs> This thing, honestly, it confused the hell out of me when I was reading it. It really lost me. Like, he murders this woman, right, back in the 60s. And then in the future, they develop this really elaborate ruse with the woman's son. And it's a publicity stunt to try and introduce Major Force to the world. And I did not understand it whatsoever. So I need Jay Jones uh, and Roy Cleary to draw me a flowchart to sort of explain this to me, please, because I'm not getting it. One of the interesting things about Major Force is he actually loses his left hand, and he ends up creating his own, uh, what they call a matter-generated hand. So it's actually made out of some of the gunk he can generate, which is kind of interesting. And, you know, he's probably best known for, um, you know know the expression, uh, women are refrigerators? No. You've heard that? No. Oh, Gail Simone coined a a term, or it was... was yeah, it was women in refrigerators, and she she did a series of pieces about how women the treatment of women in comic books. Well, I knew that right because the whole yeah. Kyle Rayner thing, right? I never heard women are refrigerators. That no, women said, in refrigerators. Oh, well, you said are. I didn't, but that's okay. I think you did. Uh, well, I do have a cold, so it may have come out right. sounding. Everybody funny, check the tapes. Anyway, women, women. If you had said women in refrigerator, I would have said yeah, absolutely, I've heard it. Okay, he's the guy. He's the guy that was shoving women in refrigerators. Oh, wonderful. He's the one who put Kyle Rayner's. Um, girlfriend in a refrigerator he put somebody else in a refrigerator i don't remember who it was but it was this guy he was major force and he's he the one who shoves indiana jones in the refrigerator yeah he's i think he was in crystal, crystal skull i think that's exactly right so i i i can't promise you no yeah he's in the new 52 because he was in a firestorm comic this guy i mean interesting enough, this guy's had some staying power i mean he's been around now 30 years so whether you like him or not and i don't uh it's kind of surprising to see how well he's hung around so good on him i guess so and if you want more on Major Force, you should check out the really fun Silver and Gold podcast by our buddies Jay Jones and Roy Cleary as they cover Captain Atom and Booster Gold. Before what? we get off there, can I just say I like his color scheme? You don't see a lot of magenta and orange. I think that's a nice color combination. So mm. to me, it stands okay. out. It is very unusual. And also, it's the way they use the shadows so that he's – it's not like a magenta. It's like everything's very, very dark, and the magenta is the highlights. Yep. Yeah. He's neat looking. Yeah, it's it's a definitely a creative look for a character. Up next, MangaCon. MangaCon? MangaCon? Anyway, uh, Steve Lealoha did the artwork on this, and he it, he was a perfect choice because he had drawn the JLI issues that were MangaCon was really prevalent. And uh, funny character, like, you know, on the surface you might look at him and just go, like, this is stupid. But once you really get into it, it's hysterical. I mean, he creates a cosmic shopping network and comes to Earth. And the way the stories are written at first, it almost reads like a Galactus story. And that was very purposeful. They wanted it to sound like, you know, a Galactus-type threat's coming to Earth. And then it turns out to be basically the home shopping network, you know, of space. And if you don't barter with them, they're going to destroy your planet. It was a riot. He ran this, uh, this, this space-going group called The Cluster. Um, one of the things that people forget – Elrond. Do you remember Elrond from Justice League? Right. He, that's how, where this got started. Exactly. Elrond came from MangaCon. He was his uh, right-hand little robot. So it was funny stuff. At this point in history, they had accidentally kidnapped Mr. Miracle. They didn't even mean to, but they had accidentally kidnapped Mr. Miracle. So the way this piece ends is that, you know, Mr. Miracle's been kidnapped, and I'm sure we'll see them again. And then it goes into the – after this, they went into the whole storyline where they went to Apocalypse and everything. Oh, it's absolute blast. And the character, believe it or not, the name itself – Manga Con comes from Keith Giffen sort of taking a swipe at Jeanette Con. 
their boss. That's where he got the con from. And then the way he makes his speeches and he rants – because the thing about Michael Khan is he starts giving a speech and he gets carried away and he's ranting and raving with big old exclamation points everywhere. And he loves to give these speeches. And they said it was intentionally a a Stan Lee parody. Hmm. So, um, and if you read it, you kind of see it as a, as a pretty funny version of that. You know, he'll be ranting and he'll turn to Elrond and he's like, I was shouting again, wasn't I? And he's like, yes, sir. And uh, just an absolute hoot. I love this character and uh, I, I, I love his costume. It's another one you don't see very often. Orange and light green. You know, with sort of that weird squiggly ri- lines on the green. So, Man, very great. complex costume, yeah. So what do you think? Yeah, I don't, I did I thought he was all right. I, I wasn't big on this at the time in the JLA, but yeah, it's fine. The artwork's nice. I, I, still like, I like Steve Lealoha a lot, so. I have to say, his artwork on the JLI issues isn't probably the strongest stuff. I mean, he, he comes right after McGuire, and... Um, big change. Th- big yeah. change. But this entry here is super solid. It looks yep. great. Yeah, the pose is cool. He's yep. bouncing the world on his finger, which is very of the character, and then you see the, the Elrond in the background. It's Yeah, it's a nice drawing. I love that Elrond's holding a pad, and it's got a big dollar sign on mm-hmm. it. <laughs> All right, up next is Manhunter. This is our buddy Mark Shaw, the guy who had his own ongoing series at this point, written by Austin Durer and Yale, drawn by the wonderful Doug Rice, who doesn't get enough credit for his work in the 80s. Um, first thing that jumps out at me that's hilarious about this thing is, is his first appearance list. They list his first appearance as Manhunter, and first I- Rob's beloved first issue, special number five. Yeah. Then, that is a privateer in Rob's beloved Justice League of America, number 143. Yeah, you betcha. And then as the stars, the stars are in Rob's beloved Justice League of America, number 149. <laughs> it's a lot of first appearances. It is, which totally cracks me up. Now, I will say, I don't think you're going to argue with me, the Serpent is super weak. Super weak. Uh, yeah, I mean, it's just that little drawing of him. That's it. That's the whole thing. Yeah, it looks like it's, it's very unfinished. Yeah, and it's almost like that was tacked on or something. Um, so he's a public defender, and he gets caught up with the Manhunter cult, who end up messing with his head. And he ends up going through all these different identities of Manhunter and Privateer and Czar Czar, and now he's a professional bounty hunter. Now, I wonder, Rob, when he, was, when he bounced around identities back in the old days in your beloved first issue special in JLA's, was, the man, was it because the Manhunter cult had messed with his head, or just that's what the stories they were telling and the Manhunter stuff was a retcon? No, they, I think the Manhunter stuff was always laid in from the beginning because when he was brought into Justice League, it was like as an arc, and like they sort of hinted, they sort of hinted like was he become was he going to become the new member of the Justice League, which of course sent Red Tornado into bouts of despair, of course. <laughs> um, and then you find out that the whole thing's been a plot, so Engelhart must have built it in from the beginning. Like he knew where it was going that because he he did he he fooled you because he was making things. you're thinking oh my god maybe the privateer is going to Join the JLA, but no, it was a whole plot. Wait a minute, Engelhart was writing it at the time. Yes, that makes a lot of sense to the Manhunters. Mm-hmm. Then that sort yep. of all sort of clicks in place. Engelhart ran wrote the book for twelve issues, and that was the Privateer. That was uh, he wrote both those books, one forty three and one forty nine. Okay, well there we go. Those are the final issues before Jerry Conway took over. Oh, Jerry, so good, so good. So one of the neat things about this era of Manhunter, first of all, his costume is great. He has a really cool costume. He's got, you know, a, a stylized version of the Manhunter mask with a little bit of a hood. He's got a really nice dark blue and red combination suit with some interesting pattern work going on there. And Doug Rice just makes it look awesome. 
makes it look great. He's standing on, he's got his foot raised up on the Manhunter medallion, so it's sort of showing you that, that it's crumbling while he's standing triumphant over it, and he's got his awesome staff. I love this comic. I discarded late in the game. I don't think I got in until it was almost over, but absolutely love this comic book. And I remember one of the issues actually came with a mask, like the Manhunter mask. You can make it out of cardboard, like out of a. Jeez, did it really? Yeah, yeah. And I, I don't remember what it was in, but I mean, I had it. Uh, I don't think I ever popped it out. So I, you know, gotta keep it as near mint. But uh, you could make the mask out of a you know sort of car- cardstock sort of mask. It was great. And then um, now so, some people will tell you, and Frank will rant and rave about how the energy ran out of the book towards the end, and that may be true. I'm not really sure. But I have a soft spot for this character, and uh, so do some of our other friends. In fact, Aaron Head Moss is running a podcast called the Starman Manhunter Adventure Hour, where he's covering Starman, the Will Payton Starman, and the Mark Shaw Manhunter comics, and he's covering them issue by issue. So you should check that out for more information. So, do you ever read this book? No, I've never have. It was a lot of fun. So I, I enjoyed it. Check it out, especially the earliest issues. Up next is the Manhunters, and basically this is just a big piece to go over what happened in Millennium. So I'm going to really go vague on this. Uh, it's drawn by Howard Simpson and Arn Starr. It's a very nice picture. It's got a bunch of Manhunters standing on like some planet surface or a moon surface, and they all have got one fist raised. And it's sort of supposed to look like an identical army, but they took the time to draw a little bit of differences between some of the characters. So you know, it looks decent. And you can see the uh, Grandmaster back there, and then the giant. Uh, master mold or whatever he's called, robot. And um, you see the whole origin, you know, the Green Lanterns created them and all that jazz. The interesting thing here is I had forgotten that the Manhunters, when they rebelled against the Guardians, that they actually fought the Guardians for a thousand years. That's, I mean, the scale of that's just unbelievable. You know, it's, wow, you don't think about that stuff. Then they talk a lot, of, and it really goes into a lot of detail about um, Millennium, about the Grandmaster on Earth and all the sleeper agents and how to, how so many of them were just there to observe Superman and Millennium and blah, 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 blah. So, uh, anything you want to add on the Manhunter's problem? <laughs> they all look like they're at a Scorpions concert. So they don't have lighters or their cell phones. <laughs> or maybe the wherever that band, Final Countdown, whoever did that song. Europe. 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 There you go. Johnny Tempest, thank you very much. Well, we love that song in my house, the Final Countdown. We're like, we love that song so much because it's just so ridiculous, right? So over the top. And then uh, in, in Arrested Development, you know, Joe. Right, of course. Yes, Joe. <laughs> yeah. So I'm in line at Dragon Con, right? We're at Chick-fil-A and this the lady behind me has got a Europe t-shirt on. And I'm like, that's awesome. She's like, oh, you like them too? I'm like, yeah. And then she then proceeds to talk for the next 15 minutes about every album that band has ever produced. Oh, they're Lord. Still, they're still touring where I can go see them. Oops. <laughs> She's serious about this. So anyway. What tipped uh, you off? What's that? What tipped you off? Was it been the, I, maybe the Europe t-shirt should have done it. But how many times have you worn like a t-shirt? Cause it's funny. You know. Anyway, so for more information on the Manhunters, um, your best bet, I guess, would be to listen to the Lantern cast with our buddy Little Chet Bokelman. Or, you know, there's a whole episode of Secret Origins dedicated to it. So you can listen to that as well if you're really glutton for punishment. Up next is Martian Manhunter by Mark Badger. And this is an interesting period in Martian Manhunter's history. This is shortly, actually, by shortly, I mean just a month or two, actually, after his four-issue miniseries was done. He, had, he got a four-issue miniseries written by J.M. DeMatteis, and um, they, they changed up Martian Manhunter quite a bit. They sort of explained that when Dr. Erdel's Ray 
pulled him from Mars. It didn't just pull him from Mars, it also went back in time. So it actually pulled him from an earlier period of Mars's history. This is also where they established, and maybe Frank can correct me if I'm wrong, but I believe this ser- miniseries was the first time they ever established that the Martian Manhunter form, the one that you, you, know, you see typically, is not his true form. That he has a different Martian form. And you can see it here in the Serpent. And you see it you, to this day. They still use that idea that Martian Manhunter has another more true Martian form. And the form he adopts with the eyebrows and stuff is just to make humans feel comfortable. So to my knowledge, this was the first time that idea was ever introduced, which is great. And again, an aspect that's still around. Now, as far as the art goes, Mark Badger, I can, um, I can take him or I can leave him. Sometimes he's great, sometimes he's not. This time, I feel like it's a bit of a miss. You've got Martian Manhunter kind of small towards the bottom. Most of him's in shadows, and he's got his arms outreach flying. And then above it in the Serpent, you've got, as I said, Martian Manhunter's you know, alien form we've just found out about and uh, his logo. So how do, how do you feel about this one, Rob? Did you seriously invite Frank to correct us on something? <laughs> well, I figured I'd beat, it, I'd, I'd beat the rush because <laughs> he's going to do it anyway. All right. Well, all right. Okay. Uh, yeah, I like this. I like a Mark Badger. I just wish, much like my criticism of the JLA listing, I wish they had gotten somebody a little more straightforward to do cause, to do the listing. Like, to me, this style is a little too esoteric for the listing of one of, like, sort of the main pillars of the DCU. So, like, yeah. I, I, I like Badger's artwork just fine, but just kind of like, eh, I wish they had gotten, you know, just like, you know, Jerry Ordway or Chuck Patton or just somebody a little more classic style to do it. Tom Mandrake. Um, I think Badger could have pulled it off, but I think, as you said, he's just going for something different here, and it just didn't didn't come together. Up next is a super fun entry. This is uh, oh, by the way, for more Martian Manhunter, you should check out the Idlehead of Diablo podcast. So with our buddy Frank. Up next is our is Midnight, and this is a, I think this is a really fun entry. It's done by Chuck Austin, and as far as I can tell, this is his first DC work. And uh, this is coming, you know, pretty much what they're doing is they're regurgitating the Midnight origin from Secret Origins. And uh, it's got a very, very comic strip feeling, or uh, this, the way it's drawn. And it's supposed to evoke, anyway, the, the spirit. I mean, if, if you know your history on this, either through Secret Origins or when we talked about this character last time on Who's Who, he was created by Jack Cole, the same guy that created Plastic Man. And it was specifically to be sort of a riff off of Will Eisner's The Spirit. And rather than just being a straight riff, he kind of went for more of a comedy sort of a book. Anyway, the art here is great. And honestly, this looks to me like someone was putting together a pitch for an animated series. That's exactly what I was going to say. This is what it looks like. You, would, you, you could see this being shown to the guys at Hanna-Barbera. Yeah. And you know what? The way they've done it, even with the monkey, I'd have, I would have totally watched that show. Yeah, looks there's great. an old guy. There's a cute girl with suspenders. There's a crime fighter. There's a monkey in a hat. It's, there you go. Done. <laughs> right. All they need is a cool car. <laughs> yep. Yep. So uh, fun, fun origin. I mean, he's, he's basically he was a radio announcer, and he got caught up in the situation, and he, and he became the, the, the vigilante named Midnight. And again, apparently the, the strips themselves are fairly silly and, and fun-loving, and he eventually ends up with the Freedom Fighters. Maybe, so. maybe a suggestion of the silliness is, is there by the monkey in the hat. Yes, I think, it, and, and the style of the cartoons. So, so for more information, probably your best bet is to check out the recent Secret Origins episode of uh, the podcast where they do cover Midnight's Origin in great detail. Up next is an entry dedicated specifically to Al Girding. This is Miss America. Congratulations, Al. Your day has come. Uh, it's drawn by Grant M- M- 
Mime? How do you say that? I think Miam, I thought. Miam? I thought okay. that that's where they said it on Secret Origins. Okay, well, they, well he that's where I was, he did draw the Miss America entry in Secret Origins. Now, she's she's running at the camera. As Rob said, she's got sort of a classic costume. It's it's a red top that kind of like starts at her, her throat, sort of works down as a V, covers up the boobs. Uh, then she's got a red and white skirt, lots of leg, uh, blue shoes, and a blue cape, and a blue domino mask. And she just looks beautiful. She looks absolutely gorgeous. She's running at you with her hands raised to zap something in the serpent. You see somebody in a shadowy uh, uh, trench coat and a hat. You see a mad scientist, and you see her blasting a plane out of the sky, and you see the Statue of Liberty. She has an extremely convoluted origin. Um, probably too much so, but I understand why they did it. Because in the original origin, she dreamt that the Statue of Liberty gave her her powers, uh, and then later on in the Secret Origins, they revealed she was actually experimented on in a science experiment, but only believed the Statue of Liberty gave her her powers. Either way, she is crazy-ass powerful. She has, like, Firestorm's abilities ramped up to 11. She can rearrange matter um, <laughs> at will... <laughs> Whatever power she wants, she can do. I mean, they, they really listed this out on Secret Origins, and just it's astonishing to hear how powerful this lady is. Now, in post, what she's probably most famous for is in post-crisis, she was brought back uh, into prominence because they were going to have her fill in on the JSA for Wonder Woman. However, that never really came together. I mean, that was the plan, and they even said that she filled in for Wonder Woman in the JSA, but I don't know that it ever was in like more than one or two appearances anywhere, and it just kind of was forgotten. She also adopted uh, a young girl named Lyda, who is the daughter of the original Fury in Young All-Stars. So the, the Fury from Young All-Stars had a baby. Miss America adopts the baby and raises her, and she becomes Fury from Infinity, Inc. So she is the lady who raised Fury from Infinity, Inc., and her husband is named Derek Trevor. They kept the name Steve, you know, kind of the same last name as Steve Trevor, so they didn't have to mess with the names. And uh, what do you think of this one, Rob? Uh, I okay. This character is a mess because yeah. the the powers do not match the look and the name. Like, I mean, I read this series at the time in 1988, and I clearly forgot all about Miss America and what she could do. Because when I got to the Secret Origins episode, and Ryan and 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 I forget who the guest was. Al Gerding. Oh, Al Gerding. I'm sorry. When when Ryan and Al are going on to what she can do, I'm like, wait, what? <laughs> she can she can do what like I thought she looks she's, like some, she's molecule man yeah she looks like somebody that would not have any powers at all she looks right. like a Liberty Bell type person minus the bell ball the belt buckle and the whole thing so but I think her look is is great and I feel like she would be she's like a B level Wonder Woman but that's not a bad thing you mm-hmm. know like Wonder Woman can't do everything so like I, I feel like if you could if they had just done her a little differently she might have been a kind of a bigger deal but. Her powers just make no sense in the context of what she looks like. It just doesn't, you know, it, it, you're just looking at it and you're like, wait, she has atomic restructuring powers? Why does she have that? It just, it's just very strange. Well, regardless of her look, her powers don't make sense for a comic book character anyway, especially a hero because she's way overpowered. But yeah, I mean, like you said, a, a lower level Wonder Woman would have been great. Uh, she could have she could been a contender, you know? She looks, like, of- she looks like a Wonder Woman crossed with Batman. And I think like there's, mm. I think there's a real like potential there. And I love the artwork by Grant Meme. I think it's really oh, yeah. nice. I like all the, I like the guy in the shadows and the Statue of Liberty and the kind of that looks like the big bug buggy version of Doctor Sivana. Like, <laughs> I, I really, I know, I'm kind of. This is based on nothing other than just a few appearances, but I really think like there was some potential here, and 
it's a kind of shame that it never really happened for. I think her replacing Wonder Woman on the JSA makes total sense. It's a shame they didn't do that. I know she was they flirted with her being uh, the replacement for Wonder Woman on JLA too. Uh, yeah, they mentioned really? they, they mentioned that in that issue of Secret Origins. Thanks for listening. Uh, in the letters page, Wade talks about that that they flirted, with, or maybe in some other book they talked about that they flirted with that, and then they went with Black Canary. So yeah, I, I think this is like definite untapped potential, but it'll never be done now because it's all been wiped away. And the sad part is, it's pretty much just solely based on her look. You know, it, she just has a great look. Yeah, I like red, white, and blue. The domino mask, I, I dig it. I like the logo, too. I wonder if that's yeah, a classic. Yeah, the logo's nice. Yeah, yeah, it's sweet. <laughs> well, for more on Miss America, I don't know if uh, Al Green's going to cover it or not on his All-Star Comics podcast review, but he has got a real mean soft spot for this character, folks. So I'm sure if he can find a way to cover her book, she will. He, he, will, he so. has talked about that he will cover stories by non-JSA members, so I'm going to assume yep. that Miss America's on tap at some point. <laughs> I'd tap that. All right, oh, up next, geez. Mr. Mixie's Pitalik. I think I said it right. I think. I'm not sure. By John Byrne. Uh, this is the definite post-crisis Mixie's Pitalik. You know, he's in the front there with the crazy Bozo the Clown hair and the very cartoony face. And in the background you see you know, Superman's turned into a big, you know, ridiculous cartoon character. The Daily Planet building is reaching out and grabbing people. Uh, there's some other weird schmoozy stuff. I have no idea what those things are. You see Superman has been turned into what appears to be Alfred E. Newman in the back. <laughs> And then I guess it's Lois as a mannequin. I don't know, but it's kind of hot in a Kim Cattrall mannequin kind of way. Uh, <laughs> this is the Mr. Mixie's pedelic, which would show up every 90 days. And it, unlike the old days, it wasn't that you had to get him to say his name backwards. He would just come up with some kind of challenge. Um, outside of the Super Friends, I hate this character. <laughs> um, I love him conceptually, but rarely does it ever pay off. Okay. What's your feelings on Mitzi's I, I actually always kind of like Mixes Peter Lake, although I will say he was done best in animation. That episode of Superman the Animated Series is yes. probably my single favorite episode of Superman the Animated Series. It's brilliant. It's Utterly really brilliant. brilliant. So to me, it's like it's worth it just for that. Plus, I had the Mego doll, which was creepy because he looked like Michael Pollard from Bonnie and Clyde, and that was upsetting. <laughs> uh, but no, I like that Byrne brought him back. And, you know, Byrne could do a light touch when he wanted to. So I like I like the sort of perverted version of Mixus Billick, and I know that Michael Bailey's going to get all upset because I'm going to bring up whatever happened to the Man of Tomorrow. But I love the fact that Alan Moore brought Mixus Billick back as the ultimate Superman villain, and like gave him that meaner side. I, I thought that was really cool. Oh, I didn't remember that. Okay, he's, he's now, the ultimate big bad in that story. Now John Byrne also did a fun story where Mixus Billick. He, uh, or was it, or maybe that wasn't John Byrne. Maybe it, that was somebody else, but I think Byrne's involved. Anyway, where Mixie's Pitalik, he, he gets defeated and he disappears and he shows up in the Marvel Universe and you find out he's also the Impossible Man in the Marvel Universe, <laughs> which is just a clever, fun little in, in joke, which is great. Um, you know, in, in that Superman animated series episode, he's always yelling, is it, it's McGurk, right? Yep, always yep, yelling? yep, yep. I call my dog that. It's not my dog's name. But I say it all the time because of that episode. I'm always like, McGurk! And the dog has heard it so many times, he knows that I'm calling him. So, <laughs> All right. For more on uh, this version of Mitzi's Pitalik, check out From Crisis to Crisis uh, with Michael Bailey and uh, Jeffrey Taylor. Up next is Mordrew, one of the greatest enemies of the Legion of Superheroes, drawn by Mike DiCarlo and Keith Wilson. Um, not the greatest drawing of Mordrew. I want to say the last one was by Joe Kubert, I think. No. Wasn't it? Was no. It? it wasn't? Okay. Maybe I'm imagining that. But either way, um, 
I mean, he's he's sort of there in the foreground. He's he's, you know, he's got his hands raised in some mystical spell. In the background, you see faces of Darkseid and Mordru and the White Witch and some of the other Legionnaires. Uh, I think that's Element Lads, but I'd recognize it anywhere. And Dawnstar. Um, the, the deal with him is, and and I don't know if this was a recent retcon at this point. But they talk about in the story how he actually originates in the 20th century, and he battled uh, Amethyst and Gemworld and things like that. He was a prince of chaos, and they ended up imprisoning him in the 20th century until the 30th century. So I'd have to lean on my Legion of Superbloggers buddies to tell me whether that was introduced around this time in the Amethyst comic or whether that had always been around. I'm not sure. Anyway, he resurfaces in the 30th century. He hid out on the wizard planet of Xerox, and then he... um, he secretly causes the White Witch to fail some of her tests, and, gets, and she gets exiled. And ultimately, the, uh, you find out the Legion defeated him but in their first encounter. But apparently, their first encounter was never revealed, so you don't really know how it happened. It just they or, He was already a villain of the Legion when you met him, is what basically went down. And the Legion fought him many, 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 many times. So, what do you think of this one? Well, he was never better than what he was on um, the Legends of Superheroes special, live-action special well, in the 70s. Yeah, that goes without saying. Uh, yeah, I don't. I never thought I had a whole lot to do. I mean, it's a Legion guy, so I'm going, yeah, right, whatever, who cares? Uh, plus, he's kind of just particularly sort of doofy looking, so I just never gave this guy much of the time of day. Yeah, it's not the it's not the best drawing, which is a bit disappointing. But uh, for more information on Mordru, check out the Legion of Superbloggers. So, by the way, uh, he was drawn in the first iteration of Who's Who by Pat Broderick. No way! I'm looking right at it. Well, I have this really clear image in my head of like a. Sort of a, a Joe Kubert drawn version of Mordru. I wonder. What I wonder if you're about. confusing him with Blackbriar Thorn. That Maybe. was Joe Kubert. I could be. It could be. I don't know. All right. Well, up next is Negative Man. This is Larry Trainer, folks. And um, it's, it's interesting. It's another Eric Larson piece. It's another one that I would say is fairly restrained. This isn't like Magenta, or not Magenta, a Lodestone, where. Um, <laughs> Magenta's the other magnetic chick, sorry. Anyway, uh, whereas the Lodestone drawing was very Eric Larson, this one is very restrained. I mean, Larry Trainer's proportions, other than his legs are a little too long, is fairly realistic. There's nothing crazy exaggerated. There's a close-up of his face and where he's giving the thumbs up. You see the negative energy coming out of him. Um, now, if you're not familiar with this costume, it's basically it's a red suit with a white piece up the middle over the chest, and his face is covered in bandages. That's sort of negative man's shtick, is he's always covered in bandages. And then in the background, you see um, everybody's favorite TV star, Reactron, blasting <laughs> negative man. And that's part of the story here. What happens is, at this point in Doom Patrol's history, Larry Trainer doesn't have the negative man energy anymore. Larry Trainer is just Larry Trainer. And he had lost the negative energy being to the negative woman. And so there's this whole storyline in the, in the Doom Patrol comics where he's trying to get the negative being back. And uh, somehow Reactron was involved, and, and that, that's what you're seeing there is he's blasting him. And that helped him steal back the negative being. Eventually, though, the negative being did leave his body and return to Vostok. And when it left him... He actually, Larry Trainer, found himself cured of his unusual condition, which is why he had to wear the bandages all those years. So, you know, good on good on Reactron for that, I guess. What do you think of this one? Uh, I like the drawing. I like the character. I, I always like the original Doom Patrol. The font is cool. I like that. It kind of feels like the character. Uh, yeah, Eric Larson did a good job. I like the uh, the close up of him doing the Brent Rambo thumbs up. That's pretty cool. All the uh, blasting of Reactron is neat. So yeah, it's nice. I like it. I've always liked uh, Negative Man's look. It's so different, you know, the bandages mm-hmm. and everything, and with the red and white costume. It's just so unusual. It looks great. So, And, of course, as we've been saying all along, check out, uh, for more Doom Patrol action, check out Waiting for Doom podcast and the My Greatest Adventure 80 uh, blog by our buddy Doug Zoisha. 
Up next is Nemesis with art by uh, Art Tiber. Now, uh, or Art Thibbert. I always forget how to pronounce it, and everyone tells me how, and then I forget it again. Now, Tiber. Sure, whatever. Art had drawn at this point not a lot of stuff for DC. He had drawn some Who's Who entries, he had drawn some Warlord, and drawn some Checkmate. And I can only imagine his Checkmate art is what got landed in this gig. I'm not really sure. But it's Nemesis, and he's standing in the foreground. He's got his machine gun, and he's got his you know all-black outfit on with a little red logo. And in the surprint, you've got what almost looks like a red circle target. You see a city with bullets being riddled at it. You see his face changing like with a gas, and as he disguises himself, you see him about to, looks like about to get funky with Nightshade, and then you see Bell Reeve Prison and the Suicide Squad there, and it's uh, it's a lot of stuff all in one surprint. It's a decent image. It's not, it doesn't blow you away, but all the right elements are there. I mean, I think he composed it fine, it just doesn't grab me. I don't know, how do you feel about the art here? I actually like it a lot. I think, yeah, I, yeah? I, I think, uh, like you said, it's very well designed. It looks, um, it, it's very reminiscent of like a 70s spy thriller movie poster mm. and all the close-ups mm-hmm. and the sex scene and then the, the pose and then he's in the center. So it's got the James Bondy feel. This character never did a whole lot for me. It was kind of one of those like, hey, why am I getting less Jim Aparo and my Raven the Bold to get a couple pages of <laughs> Nemesis? But, uh, but they've done a lot with him. The logo's cool. And so, you know, I'd appreciate that. I mean, so it's, but it's neat. I think it's a neat looking presentation. He was created by Kerry um, Burkett and Dan right. Spiegel, right. and uh, the idea is him and his brother both try to get into the, quote, best law enforcement bureau. They didn't say which one it was, which is kind of funny. Anyway, his brother gets killed in action and, and while he's undercover by a group called the Council. Thank goodness it's not the ones involved with Supergirl. <laughs> and then, uh, Oh, they deserved another listing for sure. Right, exactly. And Nemesis himself, he got uh, – he was not – an active agent. He was more involved with inventing. So he kind of goes off on his own. He wants to balance the scales of justice. So he becomes nemesis. As you mentioned, he teams up with Batman quite a bit, ends up as a, as a regular on the suicide squad. So, and that's why he's in here because of his involvement with the suicide right, squad at this right. point. Up next is Aquaman. Uh, oh, drawn now, stop. By... Oh, what, what, what's wrong, Rob? Who, who is this, Rob? <laughs> it's Neptune Perkins, the Iron Monroe of Aquaman. <laughs> or Young All Stars by Howard Simpson and Mike DiCarlo. Um, I'm just gonna say it. This is a weak drawing. Uh, I, I I've seen a lot of Mike DiCarlo art. I mean Howard Simpson art, and Howard Simpson's a fine artist, and so is Mike DiCarlo. I, I something didn't go right here. The four image of him swimming in the water, which is a very Aquaman type pose, just doesn't really work. It's kind of disappointing. But Neptune Perkins wears a uh, basically it's a it's. A red costume, so it's a red sleeveless shirt, red trunks, red boots, and red gloves. And then the skin is exposed on his arms and legs. He's got long black hair, and he's got like a trident sort of logo. And yes, he is the Aquaman analog for the Tales of the J. Uh, for the, uh, the Young, Young All Stars. Yep. And uh, this is where this this is a perfect example where the character could have been very simple to say. The gist of it is he doesn't actually have powers, but he is has a salt deficiency, so he has to spend a lot of time in the water, and he does have webbed hands and feet, which allow him to swim really quick, but it's not really a power. And somehow he has developed the ability to talk to dolphins and whales. Again, not a power, it's a skill. And they, they make it very clear that he has skills, not powers. Um, I'm not buying he can, it. He can hold his breath for like seven minutes or something like that, so I don't see how he spends any time on the bottom of the ocean with only seven minutes, but whatever. Um, so This is where Roy Thomas really, really gets into that whole thing I was talking about where he likes to pull from fiction and pull from literature. And they, this whole thing talks about how his grandfather, Neptune Perkins' grandfather, is Arthur Gordon Pym, 
who eventually goes on to become Captain Nemo of the Nautilus. Yes, the Captain Nemo and the Nautilus exists in the DC Universe because Roy Thomas wanted it to. And then it gets into dealing with these Dizian uh, aliens. Now, I did some reading on this. There is actually some stories about Dizian aliens in India. They deal with the Vril, which I did some research on, is also uh, like a secret society that existed back in the 1800s. A little bit questionable whether they existed or not. So he's pulling in all these elements. And basically, Captain Nemo has a kid, and Captain Nemo sinks the Titanic, and his kid's kid has is Neptune Perkins. We'll just leave it at that. Um, so, and, and Neptune Perkins is sort of figuring all this out in the Young All-Stars comic at this time with the Dizzy and Inheritance storyline. So, Rob, as a guy who knows a little bit about Aquaman, what do you think of <laughs> Neptune Perkins? I actually like this drawing. Uh, I think really? Yeah, I do. I kind of yeah, it works for me. Oh, it's not great. Uh, and the serpent's kind of dull, but I like the pose, and I think he's cool. And I, although again, I'm not buying. Neptune Perkins has no actual superpowers, though his webbed feet and hands helped him swim as fast as a dolphin. That kind of sounds like a power to me. He could hold <laughs> he could hold his breath for up to seven minutes. Could talk to dolphins and whales, and because of his continual swimming, was unusually strong. I, those are all powers. Now, come on, stop it. Um, I've never read any of these stories, and and I think when this when Roy Thomas brought this into the Young All Stars, I thought he made them up because I had oh, never heard oh, of them. Yeah. And then I, you know, was like, oh my god, he actually was one of the characters, you know, in the back matter of Flash comics. It was kind of amazing. So, um, yeah, I never thought he was terribly uh, a, like a great character. Peter David eventually brought him into Aquaman, and I was kind of like, eh, all right. But you know, I I, I like the drawing. <laughs> Okay. Yeah. Well, it's interesting to point out, yeah, so um, Neptune Perkins and Dan the Dynamite were the only real Golden Age characters that were in the Young All-Stars. Hmm. Yeah. So, I, again, Young All-Stars, I love the, the concept. Absolutely adore it. So, All right. Uh, speaking of things that Rob doesn't like, oh, up boy. next, the New Guardians, which what could be a kapow moment, I suppose, because uh, the art's actually sort of compelling. It's drawn by Joe Staden and Mark Farmer, and it's got the new Guardians that spun out of Millennium. And some of it's sort of exciting. I mean, there's a couple of characters. I don't know who they, anybody's names are because their name, their heads aren't labeled, which usually is what they do. Um, you know, it's just it, it, one of the things that's worth noting is that it's a big write-up on New Guardians. It recaps everything that happened in Millennium. And the New Guardians ongoing series was actually two weeks. When this comic hit the shelf, two weeks later, New Guardians number one would hit the shelves. So they're really trying to promote the New Guardians heavy, at least on the inside. Not so much on the outside, but on the inside, they're really trying to push the New Guardians because, again, two weeks later, the, the comic's going to start, even though it doesn't last 12 issues. Um, beyond that, New Guardians, I just want to say, yeah, that happened. Yeah, I got nothing on this one. Nothing. Okay. Uh, even Floronic Man and Harbinger couldn't make this cool. So, all right, we're going to move on. So to, you should, um, for more information on the New Guardians, don't look them up. Don't waste your time. I, I, I love Joe Staten, as you all know, but I don't like this. These people look like they don't have any bones. They all look all baggy. That guy on the bottom right, the big heavy guy, he just looks like a big lump of potato. It's it's just, yeah, I'm sorry. I thought we moved on. I'm sorry. Let's move on. Newsboy <laughs> Legion. Up next is the Newsboy Legion, done by Carl Kessel. This is another one of the sort of like the Little Boy Blue st- stuff where they – it would be easier if they pointed out how obvious these are the new versions of them. You know, these are clones of the original Newsboy Legion. Uh, their parents are scientists as part of the Cadmus Project. Their names, I love them. Big words: Gabby, Tommy, and Scrapper, and Flip. Wonderful, cute names. 
and uh, the Guardian is involved with them. The, um, you know, Mr. Harper himself. And um, the the thing that's a little disappointing about this is, you know, this is the new post-crisis version of the Newsboy Legion, right? And they're clones of the originals, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Not much has changed from the previous entry of New Boys, Newsboy Legion, because in the, in the previous entry of Newsboy's Legion, there was the adult Newsboy Legion who were all scientists, and their children had become the new Newsboy Legion. The only real difference is they're no longer the children of the Newsboy Legion, they're clones of the Newsboy Legion. That's really the biggest difference. So I felt like when I read this entry, I felt like I was rereading the same entry we read when we did this group a while ago. Yeah, I love the artwork. I do love yes. that it tells a little story that they're tricking Guardian with the fake blood, and they're going to hit him with a pie. Like, I love that drawing. I, I love Guardian's super serious face. That looks great. <laughs> the characters don't really do a whole lot for me, but I really, I think the artwork's really terrific. As, as Rob's describing, they've taken a ketchup bottle and left a trail of ketchup to make it look like, as Rob said, like fake blood. And as Guardian's in the corner, he's about to come around the corner, he's going to get hit in the face with a pie, which is hysterical. It is very, I should have mentioned that. That is very funny, so... Uh, I, I like the characters. I just wasn't thrilled with the, there being another entry in here for it. And Carl Kiesel. I mean, you can't go wrong with Carl Kiesel. I mean, he's just, I love Carl Kiesel. Oh, so good. All right, up next is Nightshade, drawn by Colleen Duran. And, uh, I mean, she's well-known for drawing beautiful women. She's a perfect choice for her. Uh, the Serpent is Nightshade in her old costume, and then just a close-up of her as Eve. I, once again, I got to say, the, the Serpent's a little weak. So, I don't know how you feel about it. I actually like it. I like Colleen, Colleen Doran's work. It's very classically beautiful. I love. I like Nightshade's new costume, even though I like the old one. I really do like this piece quite a bit. Okay, you're liking all the ones I don't like. That works out. Actually, that works. Uh, there's this whole big thing about her origin, where you know she's from another dimension. Her mom was a princess there. She came to Earth because this demon incubus took over part of their dimension. So she comes to Earth and they live here. And she has two kids. One of them is Eve. One of them's her brother Larry. Larry gets captured, brought back to the old dimension. The mom is killed, so Nightshade's done her own, and she decides she wants to um, rescue her brother. So that becomes her motivation. In fact, when she joins the Suicide Squad, it's really to try and just get an, a way to rescue Larry from the other dimension. When they finally get him, they find out he has been possessed by this evil Incubus character, and they end up having to kill him, which is heartbreaking and sad. And Nightshade is smoking hot. Beautiful. It's a beautiful drawing. Yep. Really nice. So I like her logo. Very eight. Yes. Yep. Like a, looks like a nagel. Like handwriting or something. It does. It does. Yes. <laughs> Up next, a final entry of the book, folks. This is Nightwing, drawn by George Perez, and uh, it's a really nice picture of Nightwing. He's standing there with he's got his arm leaning on like a monitor or a fireplace, and it's a picture of himself. And you see the Titans in the background battling. Um, I can't quite make it out. Oh, it just looks like some schmucks. Oh, it's just, no, it's not even the Titans. It's just uh, Nightwing. I'm sorry. And then there's Titans Tower, and of course there's lots of little, you know. It looks like they're on a – oh, it, he's like on a pier or something with the artwork, the shadows in the background. Anyway, really nice-looking picture of Nightwing in his uh, disco collar era. And uh, the big thing here is it they, they indicate that it's now questionable – it's now in question how Nightwing – or how Dick Grayson quit being Robin and how he became Nightwing. They do say that that has not been revealed, which, of course, it was all revealed in New Teen Titans, but – uh, they decided to void that in option for some other stories. So at this point, it's unknown why he quit being Robin, so they must be right around the corner from revealing that. And there's no mention of the Brother Blood, which is how the last Nightwing entry it left off with this big thing about how Brother Blood had taken Nightwing over. We didn't know what was going to happen. And uh, This one's a little more timeless, though. And they do mention that he is uh, second only to Batman in his detective skills. Okay. Well, you know, so what do you think? 
Uh, well, it's George Perez doing a Teen Titan. You can't beat that. Uh, Dick looks short. He doesn't look 5'10". He looks a little stumpy here. But otherwise, it looks really good. And the detail is great and all the action stuff. So, And I like that I like that logo. I'm not a big fan of this version of the costume, but still, you know, it's pretty great. And it was nice. To, I enjoyed Robin coming out of the shadow, Dick Grayson coming out of the shadow of Batman. So I, yeah, I dug it all. Yeah, well, and, and if you want, if you have to see this version of the costume, the person you want to see draw it is George Perez. Oh yeah, absolutely. Now the interesting thing is the yellow bits there. Do you know what those yellow bits are supposed to represent? Is that supposed to be a tribute to Nightwing and Flamebird? Well, I don't know. Maybe, maybe not. But it's it's the yellow bits are supposed to be feathers. Oh really? I never got that. I never got that. But yeah. I, that was revealed in a Robin comic. I was like, what? You know, maybe that was a retcon, or maybe someone just finally explained it. But those were supposed to be sort of hints at at feathers, and you know, like the wings going up his his. Shoulders. No, I did not get that at all. I know. <laughs> so for more on Nightwing or Robin, you can check out a couple different places. Uh, check out the Pop Culture Affidavit. Our buddy Tom Panarese does a, a podcast and has a blog, and he's covered the Titans quite a bit. There is a podcast that our buddy Ryan Daly has fallen in love with called Teen Titan Wasteland, which covers a lot of the old Teen Titan stories, which might be worth checking out. And then our buddy uh, Lil Chad Buckleman is about to start the Action Comics Weekly podcast, and Nightwing will be one of the reoccurring characters. So, very cool. And folks, that is Who's Who, Update 88, issue number two. Now, on the back page, they list uh, you know where you can find these characters, and they have the little insets of these great covers. And every month, I'm always like, man, there are some really great covers here. This month, not so much. I like the Manhunter cover, and I'm done. Okay. The only thing worth mentioning in the text is it does say the Lords of Order and Chaos will play an important part in the DC Universe beginning next year. The question is, what are they hinting at? The only thing I can guess is that they're hinting at the Doctor Fate ongoing series. I'm not sure. Well, it also does mention Incubus and Succubus, who do not appear in this book. Well, it's because they're in the Nightshade entry. Well, all right, but I mean, it mentions them like it puts them in order as if they are their own character. You know, they got their own listing. Hmm, that's interesting. Okay, fair point. Fair point. All right. Well, folks, uh, I think we're going to take a quick break, play a couple podcast promos, and when we come back on the other side, we're going to do your Who's Who feedback. Sawate. My name is Stella, and I am the host of Backroll to Oracle, the Barbara Gordon podcast. Backroll to Oracle is a podcast dedicated to Barbara Gordon, the first woman to hold the mantle of Backroll for an extended period of time, roughly 1967 to 1988. The goal of Backroll to Oracle is to examine the character's history from her first appearance as Backroll and continuing through her tenure as Oracle. Each episode looks at a vintage issue of Detective Comics or Batman, as well as other books like Justice League and Freedom Fighters and modern issues of Batgirl and Birds of Prey. I also keep track of news involving Batgirl and other members of the Bat family, and I have a revolving series of segments like Babs in the Tube, which highlights appearances of Babs in TV and film, Shipper Spaway, which looks at a variety of comic and pop culture couples, gives their history and determines whether they are hot or not, Reading with Stella, which could be described as an audio drama, or just me reading a book that relates to Babs or doesn't, and of course, the mainstay literature recommendation. I have been blessed to interview writers Scott Beatty and Chuck Dixon on their backroll year one work, Brian Q. Miller on his backroll run, Dwayne Swarzynski and Christy Marks on their separate Birds of Prey work, and the creators and actors of the backroll spoiled the web series. 
I hope to interview more creators and actors in the future. My goal, most importantly, is to make a fun, entertaining, and thoughtful show that people enjoy and from which they learn. Find the show online at thebatmanuniverse.net and iTunes, and follow the show on Facebook and Twitter at Batgirl to Oracle. Thank you, and fly on, Babs lovers. Movies, TV, comics, music, pop culture affidavit has it all. It's everything random in the world of popular culture, and it's all covered by me, Tom Panneries. New episodes drop monthly at 2TrueFreaks.com, and be sure to check out blog posts about random pop culture topics at PopCultureAffidavit.com. Pop Culture Affidavit, the sworn testimony of a dork. segment we like to call who's who how's and why's and yet we never remember to tell you that's the name of this segment so folks uh we're going to do your feedback we're going to start off with some itunes reviews and i have a favor to ask folks as you as um we should have mentioned at the top of the show rob but we completely forgot is that people can subscribe to the who's who podcast all by itself now if you've been listening to the Fire and Water podcasts all these years just for the Who's Who episodes, you can actually go out to iTunes now or whatever podcast grabber you use, and you can subscribe specifically to the Who's Who show. Just type in Who's Who. You'll have to troll through a couple of different Who's Who po- uh, different podcasts named Who's Who, not about the DC Comics, but like, you know, Who's Who and Doctor Who, whatever. And you'll find the Who's Who in the DC Universe podcast, and uh, you can subscribe directly to it. Now, here's the thing. Now that it has its own feed, we're in desperate need of some iTunes reviews. Because the old Fire and Water podcast feed, which is still out there, which is the whole network now, has over 100 reviews. 100 comments and reviews. Thank you so much. You guys are amazing. And most of them are about who's who. The news who, <laughs> the new who's who feed has a whopping three. <laughs> so if you guys wouldn't mind going out and writing a review on iTunes for the Who's Who podcast. Uh, that's specifically for that show. We would really appreciate it. It will help raise the profile of the show. It will help new people find the show, and we'll get more feedback. And, uh, you know, this whole community of folks that listen to Who's Who and chat with each other and argue and put 57 comments on the episode and, and you know, bring out all these amazing nuggets of information, that group will grow. So please go out there and write a review. We'd appreciate it. So we're going to start off here. We've got um, – uh, the first review, it comes from iTunes. It's from uh, Stephen T. Boyd, and he wrote, Easily my favorite podcast. Consistently a terrific, informative, and entertaining visit to a very special time in the history of DC Comics. All the shows in the Firewater Podcast family are terrific, and this one's no exception. Robin Shag's enthusiasm for the material, characters, and history shines through. I always look forward to a new episode. Oh, thank you, Stephen. I'm glad you wrote that before you listened to this episode. <laughs> Great review. Uh, Ryan Daly, our pal over at the network uh, from Secret Origins, Give Me Those Star Wars, Power of Fishnets, says, One of the bad, best podcasts about anything ever. Early in the life of the Fire and Water podcast, Rob Kelly and the Irredeemable Shag tried something different, an index show of who's who, the definitive directory of the DC Universe. The result was extraordinary, a thorough, mostly loving, and brutally honest review of one of DC's signature series from one of its most prolific eras, the 1980s. On each episode of Who's Who, Rob and Shag dissected dozens of heroes, villains, and teams one issue at a time. But more than that, the hosts flood every episode with heart, humor, nostalgia, and nuance... 
really? All to create something remarkably <laughs> fun and insightful. If you're a fan of DC Heroes in History, you must check this show out. Hell, if you're a fan of your own ears, treat them to something special and subscribe to Who's Who right now. Well, thank you, Ryan. This That's so nice. nice. He had to have his wife write that. I don't believe you. I'm pretty sure she did, yeah. yeah. And the part where he's talking about nuance, I think he's talking about me. That's got to be a me thing. Clearly. That's, that's the only thing that makes sense because I'm so subtle. You know? That's right. We're from our buddy Chris Franklin, who's also part of the network, who does the Supermate show in the Power Record show. Says, definitively fun. Rob Kelly and the Irredeemable Shag. Which, by the way, why does everyone say Rob Kelly and the Irredeemable Shag? Why is it never the Irredeemable Shag and Rob Kelly? Why are you Alph- always first? Alphabet- alphabetical. Oh, whatever. Anyway, those guys, they bring the fun friction they developed on the Firewater podcast to the Encyclopedia of DC Comics. Who's who? The intrepid duo covers every issue of the original series, the updates, the spinoffs, the loose leaf editions, the loose leaf editions, well, they say they will, with equal parts of rev- reverence and snark. If you ever loved a character published by DC Comics, more than likely Robin Shag have or probably will cover them at some point in the series. If you haven't listened yet, you're missing out on hours of comics edutainment. Educa- educa- I can't say that word. It's a, a fictitious word. Education and entertainment. Edutainment. I love that. And I apologize. I think the cold medicine's kicking in, which is making it hard to talk. <laughs> yeah, that's what it is. I'm sure that's what it is. Uh, so thank you guys for those iTunes reviews. They mean the world to us. It really does help people find the show. So uh, I thank you in advance for your iTunes reviews. I can't wait to read the next seven on the next episode. <laughs> Uh, the first comment we got is from the Irredeemable Shag, uh, oh, who wow. sent a link to Merriam-Webster's dictionary site, the word veracity. Noun, the state, quality or state of being voracious. Yes, I questioned Shag's use of that word because I didn't think it was a word, but it is in fact a word. Questioned or told me I was wrong? Told I think, well, I probably did both. Uh, and then it was pointed out that from Zoom, who I used to like, that I was wrong about that. <laughs> See, I do know them. They're big words. <laughs> heard from our buddy uh, Rook Wilder, who I've never even heard of before now, but now he's my buddy. He says, uh, Koenig, because I was questioning Koenig from the Checkmate entry. I said, I, I felt like it admits something, but I couldn't place it. He said, it's German for king. So there we go. Thank you for that. And then I talked about Felix Faust and how Felix Faust wasn't really that big a deal. And he was a, he was like the, the not ready for primetime player of, of Justice League bad guys. And he says, actually, Felix Faust appeared in live action on Constantine on NBC last fall. So good for Felix. He did actually make the jump to live action. Very cool. Uh, Plum Zaplook wrote in to say uh, regarding Chunk, if Chunk were, being, were to be in the Flash TV show, I think it would finally get a reason to watch the show again. I have tried to get into it, but for some reason I can't quite explain. I can't. However, a character as silly as Chunk would just make me have to watch it. <laughs> uh, Dan Budnick wrote in to say, I bought the original 26-issue run of Who's Who back in the day, but never got to the updates. They're an interesting animal. I was trying to think how I'd compare the original run. And then I thought, the 26-issue run is like Battle, is, is like Back to the Future. The updates are like Battle of the Network Stars. Back to the Future was released in 1985. It's very much of its time. Huey Lewis, the special effects, and obviously the section set in 1985. But it also strives to be timeless. The, orche- the orchestral score, time travel, the use of the 50s. Who's Who's original run is like that. The constant references to Crisis and the yellow dots grounded firmly in 1985. Then you turn a page and see the Star Rovers. Woo-hoo! Suddenly it's 10, 20, 30, 40, 50 years ago. Although the series is clearly mid-80s made, though much of it, uh, of its subject matter and its objective, it lifts itself out of that time and becomes transcendent. And then he goes into a very long detail about the Battle of the Network Stars, about how it was sort of current and meant to promote the things at the time, which is very much what the updates are doing. 
Yeah, those, those are good analogies. Yeah, yeah, it actually works out. When I first read it, I was like, where is he going with this? But it all, <laughs> it all came together. And then he adds, uh, he throws in a little thing. He says, Rob, for future Power Records podcasts, if you ever need a Gemini Man expert to discuss that record, I'm your man. We can't all be experts on useful things. <laughs> uh, he did say Lady Cow forever, so you know he's trying to play to your strengths there. Then he sent in, and I wish we had time for this, but he sent in a script. It's like a this thing's like two pages long. Um, it's just it's a dialogue between Superman and Batman because you and I were talking about the Wayne Foundation in one of these earlier episodes, and and we came up like, did Batman hire movers to get all the stuff from the Batcave over to the new location? And um, he wrote a little play between Superman and Batman, basically Batman asking Superman to help him move. And Superman constantly making up excuses and you're like, oh, you can't. Oh, I got to go. You know, it's it's very, very funny. And I I strongly encourage um, Dan to go back and post that into the comments of this episode of Who's Who so other people can read it because it's hysterical. They need to it needs to be out there, buddy. Share it with the world. All right. Moving on. Uh, in the interest of time, we heard from our buddy Jose Rivera. He says, I don't know if I'm in the minority here on this, but I adore those Ty Templeton covers. They're not the standard who's who cover treatment they're used to, but there's something about the style that grabs me. Uh, it, you know, Jose, to answer your question, um, it, it's really split. It's interesting. There's a lot of people that love the covers and a lot of people that don't. So uh, you're you're in you're, you're in my camp. So good on you, bro. Then he says, I'm a huge Checkmate fan, and I love the listing for this. But, yes, even I'm taken aback that Harvey Bullock was part of this clandestine government agency. Because <laughs> we talked about that last time. Right. Uh, former friend Zoom Yukinori wrote in to say, <laughs> regarding the Blackhawks, the first Lady Blackhawk from the Quality Comics who first appeared in issue number 40 of the Blackhawk series was actually named She-Hawk. And her real name was, wait for it, Sheila Hawk. <laughs> I believe she was a rich debutante that was inspired by the Blackhawks to create the She-Hawk identity. Wow, okay. By the way, we should give credit uh, where credit's due. Zoom Yukonori uh, publishes over in Comic Book Resources under the line it is drawn. And uh, he's an amazing artist, and he also has his own blog. So you should check those out. Then he goes on to say... Um, I must admit, I did enjoy the portrayal of Danny Chase during the brief times Marv Wolfman and George Perez worked together again on the Titan series, especially during the not-so-recent Games graphic novel in which Perez depicts him as a young River Phoenix. Then he talks about Firestorm. I had talked about how Joe Brozowski had literally swiped his own drawing of Firestorm for the Who's Who. It wasn't a reproduction, but it was just basically a redrawing of the exact same pose of Firestorm. And he says, Joe Brozowski is actually renowned, or is it notorious, for reusing and swiping artwork, as we'll see eventually when we start covering those issues in future episodes of the Fire and Water podcast. <laughs> That'll be interesting to check out. Uh, regarding the Forever People, I would definitely be sold in an Up With Forever People Hanna-Barbera cartoon with a Mel Blanc as Speed Cycle. <laughs> That's hysterical. That would have been great. I didn't even think about that. But, yeah, of course, they would have had the, 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 the you know, the car had to have talked. Absolutely. Uh, the character of Ghost, he said, I'm curious if the other perp- – okay, the Ghost image, uh, the character of the Ghost, his image on Who's Who was very unusual. It was full color. Uh, rather than a serpent, it just didn't look like it fit, but it was a nice image. Anyway, he says, I'm curious if the other purpose for that full-color Broderick junkie pin- pinup artwork was actually for the Captain Adam series itself, or even the canceled comics Cavalcade Weekly project. So, could very well be. It may not have been drawn for who's who. Hmm. And then he actually come, comes in to say, this is where he... Uh, forever earned Rob's ire. He goes, Shag is actually correct in his use of the term veracity, which is an actual word that means the quality of being voracious. What's more, Shag actually pronounced it correctly. Thank you, Zoom. Um, you are now in my will. 
Uh, then we heard from our buddy Mark Baker Wright from Black Rock's Toy Box. He says, this is uh, the only comic book format DC Who's Who I still happen to own, specifically because Firestorm's inclusion, of course. Then he sort of took us to chase, uh, took us to task, took us to chase, took us to task on Danny Chase, because we ripped Danny Chase. He took me to task. He really took me to task. I was trying to be gentle, but anyway, uh, because we ripped Danny Chase a new one, and uh, he didn't quite get where the, 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 the bile and anger was coming from, and we basically just explained we were having fun. So, and by the end of it, everyone is friends and all's good. So, Danny but, Chase knows what he did. <laughs> it's fair to say, Danny Chase does still suck, though. Uh, we heard from Darren and Ruth Sutherland from the Warlord Worlds podcast and the Trekker Talk podcast. And they said, I definitely think Green Arrow deserved an updated listing. New costume, new location, and new urban hunter storyline. I honestly think this version of Green Arrow by Mike Grell defined the character in a way that still resonates today that can be seen in the Arrow TV series. And uh, Darren and Ruth, I would agree with you. Yeah, that's completely true. Yeah, 100%. Uh, they also wrote, It's a shame that Mike Grell didn't draw the entry, but since Hannigan and Giordano were drawing the main series, it makes sense. I think the two of them did an admirable job in the comic, and the style matches Mike Grell's Longbow Hunters quite well. All right. Uh, since they are two of my favorite characters, I've always – oh, this is them still Darren and Ruth. He says, since they are two of my favorite characters, I've always liked that both Aquaman and Green Arrow debuted in the same issue of More Fun Comics, and they're both co-created by Mort Weisinger. Very cool. That's, that's something a lot of people forget, that Green Arrow and Aquaman appear, uh, premiered in the same comic book. Yep. Wow. Yep. Heard from our buddy Joe X. He goes, yeah, Amazing Man's powers went from Absorbing Man to Yankee Poodle. I do <laughs> like that heroic descendants kept the original powers. Uh, he says the only Blackhawk to show up in the late 80s was DC with Chop Chop, who ran Blackhawk Express, which I, to me, Blackhawk Express sounds like uh, like a Chinese food place that you see in a mall. Right in the mall. Somebody's standing <laughs> outside giving out samples. <laughs> um, he goes, yeah, Blue Trinity, because we talked about one of the guys looked like a frog. He was so weird. He says, Blue Trinity were deformed by experiments that created them. And, and then Christina ended up going on to be Lady Savitar. So thank you for that. I couldn't quite remember all the details of it. He talks about Checkmate. He says, this version of Checkmate concept would make a good TV show. And that's a great point. That would be a – Checkmate concept is really strong and would make for a cool TV show. And then he says uh, – he brought up about Danny Chase. A lot of people talk about Danny Chase, by the way. And he says, wasn't Danny Chase editorially mandated to add more actual Titans to the Teen Titans? I don't know the answer to that. Um, I put that one out to Tom Panarese. That's a good question. Uh, but certainly, you know, you know what else is funny also throughout most of the comments? Everyone keeps referring to Danny Chase's cousin Oliver. <laughs> right. Which is, is just perfect. I mean, it's right for him. So. Heard from Zeb Oswald. He says, cool podcast as always. Sorry, Rob. Shag is right. The Loose Leafs were awesome. Yeah, there you go. I like that. And he goes on to say, Eric Larson, he's a better writer than artist in my way of seeing it. Loved his uh, writing on Savage Dragon, but not the art. Interesting. I never really think about Eric. This is Shagna. I never really think about Eric Larson as a writer, even though he clearly is, and he's written what, hundreds of issues of Savage Dragon now by now, probably. Um, I just always think I think of his artwork. So that's interesting. I, I I don't think I've read enough of his stuff to to formulate an opinion. But interesting, Zeb. Thanks. Little Wasser Burbage for, uh, from the Legion of Super Bloggers and Friends of Justice Blog writes, greetings from Naltor. <laughs> is, is it just me, or does this Brainiac, especially on the cover, not resem- uh, resemble Sven Gulli, the horror film host from cable TV? Yeah, he does, actually. That's a pretty good call, Russell. I didn't even think about that, but but yeah, he does remind me of that guy. <laughs> it's, that's got to be like a Yankee thing. I have no idea who that character is. That you're oh, okay. About. You know, with a, he was like a, one of those horror hosts. Oh, that, I, you know, I know what that concept right. is. Okay, right, yeah. 
you know, interestingly enough, my dad, um, growing up, one of his best friends was a horror host. That's awesome. Count, Count Zapula. And uh, I, I remember going down to the – my dad was a manager of a TV station. Right. I remember going down to the TV station, and they had the coffin you know, there in the studio, and oh, Count Zapula would come awesome. out of the coffin. That's great. I mean, yeah. He's a great guy. He's such a character actor. He's great. He was actually in Somewhere in Time as well with uh, Christopher Reeve and um, – Jane, Jane Seymour. Seymour. Wow. Yeah. Very cool. There, there's a scene in a restaurant, and there's this huge guy in the background with a giant mole on his face in the restaurant. That's him. Anyway. Hmm. Uh, Michael Chiaroscuro wrote in, and Michael Chiaroscuro is famous, uh, infamous almost, really, for his non-existent Batman and the Outsiders blog. Anyway, he wrote in to say, Dr. Occult looks so badass in this entry, I still can't get over that ludicrous origin story. His real name is Doc Doc Occult. So he had to get a PhD to make his name valid? Really? It's so stupid it hurts my brain. Anyway, beautiful artwork by Stasi and Rankin in this one. Goes on to say, Duchess looks fantastic here too. I'm with you guys. I tend to waffle on Luke McDonald's artwork. For instance, I think his work on the Deadshot miniseries from this era was stellar. All right. Uh-huh. Tom Panarese from Pop Culture Affidavit and the In Country Podcast wrote in to say, uh, regarding Danny Chase, Danny Chase is awful. He sucks. He's the cousin Oliver of the Teen Titans. There has never been any reason to like him. <laughs> well, then he went on to enumerate the two reasons that are the exceptions, and I had to bring these up, because uh, these are very fascinating to me. In 1993, as part of a story that never came to be, Danny was going to be the identity of the as yet unidentified leader of the Team Titans. Now, if you ever, this is Shag now, if you ever read Team Titans, there was always some, like, because the characters were in the future and they were sent back in time to, it was very convoluted, but the, the leader in the future, you, we all knew that it was secretly a former Titan and it was now someone else that had become the leader of, and was sending all these Team Titans back and no one knew who it was. That was a huge mystery. So what, so what Tom's saying is that was going to be revealed to be Danny Chase. So uh, they say, and Jeff Jensen and Phil Jimenez had done this for express purpose of giving Danny Chase a chance to be cool. However, that was scrapped when the title was put on the chopping block and Zero dictated that the Team Titans leader was Monarch. Ugh! That was a terrible ending. Wow. That would have been kind of cool if it had been Danny Chase. Then he also goes on to say the second reason Danny Chase was cool. He goes, I can't go into too much detail before giving away too much. If you haven't read it, but the original New Teen Titans graphic novel Games by Marv Wolfman and George Perez has Danny Chase actually do something heroic that, at least for the moment, makes you like the character. Does then he, he sacrifice says, himself? I, I don't know. I actually own the hardcover and I've never read it because I want to read through all my New Teen Titans first. <laughs> You've got to get through all those sad sacks first. No, I, I, I one day, I, not one day, but over the course of a period of time, I bought all the New Teen Titans uh, everything from the first run, uh, and then like up to, through the first twelve issues of the Baxter series. Wow! And I've never actually read all of them. I've never read the the amazing Teen Titan run that everyone loves so much. Hmm. I missed it when I was a kid. So I've only read the first twelve or so issues, maybe sixteen issues. And my intention is to read them all at some point. And I haven't got to. Anyway, I, he ends this sort of by saying, uh, "I will now go shower so I can wash off the shame of what I just wrote about Danny Chase." <laughs> And then he has a question here. He says, I do have one question. Have, this is still Tom Panarese. Have you or will you be posting a definitive list of the 1989 annuals that feature the Who's Who entries? I've been enjoying reading along with the show and hoping to continue. That's a great point. So I think what we'll do is on the blog, on the Fire and Water podcast blog uh, or website, whatever you want to call it, we will post a list um, as we reach the end of Who's Who Update 88, which is still, you know, only two more issues to go, so by that standard, that's, what, six months? Um, only two more issues to go, and then we'll post a whole list of all the 1989 annuals to give you time, guys time to go through your lawn boxes and dig up all 40-something annuals or just get in touch with me about a torrent. But anyway. 
<laughs> so, yes, I would love for you guys to follow along because those are interesting. I, I haven't actually read all those. those. Those are actually, a lot of those are going to be new to me. So I'm looking forward to it. Heard from our buddy Ange, uh, Dr. Ange to be exact, from the Supergirl uh, blog, Comic Box Commentary, and he's a member of the Legion of Super Bloggers. He wrote in to say something nice about Axis America. He says, I have to say that for me, the craziest member of this group is Seawolf, an underwater breathing werewolf. That's insanity. And I always say the early issues of Young All-Stars were drawn beautifully and made these guys look pretty good. So that's about the best kind of compliment you can hope for. Uh, he also wrote regarding Felix Faust. The artist drew the Zatara, Zatanna, Dr. Miss Secret Origins issue. Rob was really on his game with the Zingers today. I'll never look at that picture again without thinking of cats. But clearly he would be dancing to magical Mr. Mesistopheles, not Rum Tum Tugger. <laughs> you got me there, Angie. I only know that one song from Cats. Well, I guess <laughs> Memories is the other song or whatever. But, that's you know, Mr. Magical, whatever, that's a little too deep cut for me. Felix Faust was much better than Cats. I will see yeah, it, it again, again and, and again. again. <laughs> uh, he did on Twitter. You know, folks, let's let's pause the show for a moment and just have a brutally honest moment. Doctor Ange is sick. Doctor Ange, heal thyself. Your morbid fascination with hiatus—it's a problem. You need to check into some of the recovery programs at the hospital you work at. I'm just saying. Because he's tweeting us sneak peek pictures of the new Hyathis. Then he tweets us pictures when Hyathis is revealed. It's just sad. It just makes me feel bad for you. So, Anyway, moving on, our buddy Doug Zawisha uh, from the Doom Patrol blog, My Greatest Adventure 80. He said, ah, actually looking at who's who update number eight, or 88 number one while listening to the Fire and Water podcast. Hashtag the whole patrol. And uh, it says, yes, I'm still behind on my listening. Our buddy Jeff R., who always finds the egregious omission of the month, says he's really struggling to find the egregious, egregious omissions in these um, uh, updates because they there weren't a lot of I mean they didn't miss many characters and there's not a lot of interesting characters to put in there. So he, some of the ones he considered were Extrano from the New Guardians, but he felt like that was covered already by the the entry itself. Amethyst, but because uh, she had some changes, but if they posted her, it would reveal the changes before they were even done being said. Batgirl, but they hadn't really decided about Killing Joke yet. Deacon Blackfire, who just came out right about the same time this happened. So he said he stuck with the Flying Dutchman of Time. Uh, for but No, 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 no. That's a character from Firestorm. And that's actually a pretty cool character. It was a two-issue storyline of Firestorm where it, it's like this peace hippie guy, but he's all cosmic and like psychedelic and stuff. And uh, it was, it, yeah, it's a good pick, man. It was a cool uh, – Joe Brzezowski, for a little while – this is, is weird. Brzezowski actually posed as a different artist for a while. Right. J.J. Birch? Exactly. And those are some of the J.J. Birch issues that he drew, which were a lot more like some of the weird Keith Giffen stuff he was do- Keith Giffen was doing, but in a good way. It was, uh, it was entertaining. So would have been a good choice. Then he goes on to say, and you're wrong, Shag. This is still, um, this is still Jeff R., he goes, you're wrong, Shag. It's absolutely Gnort, meaning the character Nort. If it were just Nort, there wouldn't be an apo- there would not be an apostrophe in there. So I came back with, well, re- regarding Nort, the pro- the pronunciation of Nort came directly from J. M. DeMatteis himself. Also, you referenced the apostrophe in Nort, and time to get some glasses, buddy. There's no apostrophe, which shocked a lot of people. A lot of people imagine the word Nort. Now, somebody may have written it with an apostrophe, but Officially, it does not have an apostrophe in it. And uh, there's another explanation for how to pronounce Nort that came up recently. This came from, comes from Kevin Dooley, editor of the Justice League titles. He says what you're – and David uh, Gutierrez shared this with me. What you're supposed to do is grab your nose 
right? Pinch your nose, Rob. You doing this with me? No, I'm not doing it. Okay, so Rob, go ahead and pinch your nose now. And you say Nort as you are pinching your nose and sliding your fingers off your nose. So you go, Nort is another way to say it. No, I'm not doing that because I have basic human dignity. So I'm not going to do that. Uh, Jay Peterson wrote in. He says, hold on. There is a character that is an underwater Nazi werewolf? How is this not one of Aquaman's arch enemies up there with the Black Man and Ocean Master? Well, because that's the Earth-1 Aquaman, not the Earth-2 Aquaman. But I will say, Jay Peterson, yes, they should have found a way to uh, – Roy Thomas should have found a way. Although I guess they couldn't have because by that time the Aquaman of Earth-2 was already gone out of history. So never the twain shall meet. Sorry. They could, okay, but wait. Is it really that far of a stretch if you have an underwater Nazi werewolf to say that he lived 60 years? Sure, and, right. You could have done Aquaman that. In the yeah. Silver Age? Or they could have done an Earth-1 version. Sure, yeah, yeah, yeah. That would have been awesome. I would have yeah, loved that. that would have been, yeah, would have been really fun. I uh, heard from our buddy, and by buddy I mean nemesis, uh, Nathaniel Wayne from 90 comics, 90s Comics Retrial and the Council of Geeks. He says, Shag, for shame! Listening to Who's Who and you claim Felix Faust has never been played in live action. Oh, you poor misguided mortal! Felix Faust appeared in probably the best single episode of the Constantine TV series from last year, an episode called Quid Pro Quo. He was played by the always riveting Mark Margolis, who is probably best known for his point, uh, for this point of Breaking Bad, where he is bound to a wheelchair, but uh, with not but a desk bell to communicate with. Tuco! Holy goodness. Okay, I'll trust you guys on that. But, uh, okay, so I was wrong. And so, let's see. Nathaniel, you're criticizing me for saying Felix Faust finally made it to the big time by being in a show that got canceled. And no one remembers him even being in it other than you. And maybe one or two other people. So... I think you made my point for me, buddy. Uh, we heard from Michael Bailey, our buddy from, from Crisis to Crisis, Views in a Long Box, Tales of the JSA, and I think about 47 other podcasts. Uh, he wrote in to defend Gangbuster because Rob was bitching and moaning about Gangbuster. No, Rob I wasn't. Oh, no, Rob, no, I think Rob no. was like opened his comic and peed on it while we were talking. <laughs> I mean, just, he hates the Gangbuster. Anyway, uh, Michael defended <laughs> Gangbuster saying, I loved and continue to love how he was the spirit of Superman but had to resort to the tactics of Batman because he's just a guy. Rob mentioned the utilitarian nature of the costume, and that was one of his appeals. Marv Wolfman and Jerry Ordway showed him putting on the costume together, and it was very much a mail order slash army supply surplus affair. And then uh, later he goes on to say, I went from someone that tried to buy all the latest Superman books to someone that had to buy the latest Superman books, and Jose Delgado, the gangbuster, had a lot to do with that. It doesn't hurt that the art on both books was amazing, and that's kind of what uh, give, that's kind of a given when Kerry Gamble and Jerry Ordway were involved. Then Shag mentioned the idea that Gangbuster was supposed to graduate into being a new guardian, being I'm sorry, to being the new guardian, not to be confused with the horrible new guardians. We're saying the character of the guardian. He was I had said he was going to become the guardian. Anyway, and Michael saying that actually wasn't exactly the case. Oh wait, he's saying I'm wrong. You know what? Screw you, Bailey. Anyway, so he goes on to say, if I'm remembering correctly, Ordway and Mike Macklin wanted to use the Guardian in some capacity, but then Superman editor Andy Helfer nixed that idea so they could develop Gangbuster instead. So it wasn't that he was supposed to be Guardian, but he, that he filled the Suicide Slump protector role until Mike Carlin was editor and more of a Bronze Age stuff started coming in. He also mentions, he says, I'm walking through Walmart, getting some groceries, and making an ass out of myself by laughing at Rob. Tell Shag that Milton Fine looks, quote, a little Michael Bailey as redesigned by Jerry Ordway. Thanks for that. I now have another character I can cosplay as. <laughs> he also, he also asks, wait one second, he says, he says, wait, was Rob watching MASH while recording the last Who's Who episode? I swear I keep hearing the theme. 
I have to reveal the 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 thing there. What goes on when I record every week? Uh, generally, uh, Darlene Tracy is sitting here on the couch not far away from where I'm recording. Except when we do Who's Who because they go really late, which I don't even know how to tell you. She's come to refer to Who's Who as friends and family. So when I do friends and family, she goes she she goes to bed and she put Mash on and it was like just a touch too loud. I didn't think the microphone could pick it up, but clearly it did. Because, yeah, after I went back and listened to the recording, I kept hearing Suicide is Painless over and over again. So I was like, oh, sorry about that guy. Was it like she put a DVD in of it? or uh, Netflix. We have the Netflix in the Oh, uh, okay. That's funny. I didn't even notice it during it. <laughs> well, uh, in regard to um, Rob calling you Milton Fine and giving you a new character to cosplay, Rob's a giver. So there you go. Heard from uh, David, who the only identifying trait I could find about him was that he was from San Diego. Uh, he wrote in to basically talk about Legends of Tomorrow and was sort of defending it, and uh, meaning the, the TV show, and said we should give it another chance. So there we go. It's been on for a number of weeks, David, and I hope you are still enjoying it. So, uh, Heard from Lil Chad Buckleman from the Lantern cast in the Ragman blog. He uh, also goes on to talk about how Felix Faust appeared in Constantine. Thank you for that. Heard from our buddy Anthony Durso, the Toy Room, who does these amazing custom Mego boxes. Sure and. And this, this discussion comes up a bit here, where the comic version of Who's Who versus the loosely version of Who's Who. And we're, we're rapidly heading towards that you know, argument. Anyway, he goes, I fall between Rob and Shag on this. While there's still some great artwork, I'm not a huge fan of the format. It's uh, messy, to put it mildly. To this day, I can and still do pull out the original series and its updates to reread, but don't find myself dragging out the loosely binders as much uh, as with the same amount of frequency. You know, this is what's interesting. Um, this is Shag now. Anthony, I actually find it easier to pull out the binders than the issues. Because the issues, you got to pull them out. you got to find, you got to get the right issue. you got to pull the comic out of the bag. You know, there's only 32 pages, so you don't know if you're going to get the right one. Whereas all of my who's who fit into three binders for the binder edition. So I pretty much know where the letter C is going to fall. Or, you know, whatever. So I almost never have trouble finding a character there. So... I don't know. I like the loose leaves. I'm quite a fan. Rob's mistaken for not liking him, but Rob's mistaken about a lot of things in life. I mean, for goodness sakes, he started an Aquaman blog. So Started a podcast with this real dingbat, so that was... A, <clears throat> Dude, Chris Franklin is not even here to defend himself. <laughs> that was harsh. Anyway, um, he goes on to say, I'm probably one of the few people that like the Tiny Titans role as part of Dan Jurgens' Teen Titans series. Sir, you are not alone. I also liked... Uh, Ray Palmer, Teenage Adam. I, I, I thought he looked cool, and I liked him in that series. So. And he goes on about Brainiac. Just stop me if you've heard this one before. Brainiac, Hawkman, and Wonder Girl walk into a post-crisis bar and proceed to discuss who has the most con- convoluted continuity. <laughs> I love that. It's awesome. Uh, Paul Hicks from the Waiting for Doom podcast. He says, Shag, thanks for the mentions of Waiting for Doom, the Doom Patrol podcast. It's a little thing, but we can see the podcast audience growing every time you do it. Rob, thanks for nothing. Paul gets me. I love his sense of humor. He totally gets I think, me. Uh, I think Paul was hoping that he's going to get to join the Fire and Water Podcast Network, and he's going to be sad to know that I have a, uh, I have a very powerful veto, and I'm going to use it. <laughs> Way to go, Paul. Uh, our buddy Philemon, and by, by buddy, I mean <laughs> crazy dude. Um, Philemon's famous, by the way, in the annals of Who's Who feedback, because Philemon always says the opposite of what makes sense. So let's see how uh, his comments 
turnout this time. Uh, I'm going to read first comment number 14. And by the way, for the record, it's the first comment 14, because apparently he felt like he needed two comments numbered 14. It says, Doom Patrol. Ah, my old nemesis, Eric Larson. Forever ago, I got into an internet argument with the Savage Dragon creator over our political differences in the comment section of a Newsarama article. He gave as good as he got. If I remember correctly, which surprised me from a professional, I assumed he'd be more diplomatic. Funnily, funny, fun, fun, how do I say that word? Funnily? Ferocity. Oh, veracity. Right after the spat, Newsarama disabled the ability to comment on their articles. I choose to believe that I am responsible for that policy decision. <laughs> way to go, sir. Way to go. Way to go, Philemon. I'm very impressed. Uh, he goes on to say, thrilled to see the forever people back in Who's Who, although I'm less than enthused by this update of the character. Beautiful Dreamer in particular is a travesty. There we go, ladies and gentlemen. There's the insanity that we knew. Uh, he's happy to see the forever people. Clearly, this man has no idea what he's talking about. Goes on to say, the ghost. This entry provided me with an existential crisis. In flipping through the issue the first time, I quickly identified this as my favorite piece of art. As I look at it longer, though, I think it only pops for me because they messed up and the serpent, if you can call it that, is in full color. So I can, so can I truly call myself a who's who fan if I prefer a piece that lacks the typical serpent? Ah, that's very good. Okay. And uh, final major thought from our buddy Philemon, proving once again that he is the opposite of everything logical and sensical. He says, I loathe this version of Green Arrow with the bile of a hundred million overactive gallbladders. Ollie Queen should always have a little hat with a feather in it. Nuff said. Did he really just diss on the Mike Grell Green Arrow? Seriously? I like the Mike Grell version, but I do miss the hat. I really did. I love that costume so much. I love seeing Jose Luis Garcia Lopez, praise be his his name, name. stock art of Green Arrow. It looks great. But if I want to read a Green Arrow comic, I want to read the Mike Grell stuff. I'm sorry. Ah, That Trevor Von Eden miniseries was really good, too. Well, then uh, he did ask a good question at the end. He goes, where's the Zoom entries? Because last time I read uh, some stuff about uh, Zoom Yukinori's Who's Who entries, and I forgot to post them. But now you'll be able to find all the all the Zoom's Who entries on our website. So you won't have that problem going forward. Heard from our buddy Chris Franklin. Uh, again, we mentioned him. He's from the network. Talks about Green Flame. Uh, she was leaning on something that we couldn't figure out what the hell it was. We speculated a, a furnace a pillow, all kinds of stuff, and eventually came out in the comments that a lot of people thought it was a charcoal bag. And uh, Chris says, uh, the charcoal bag makes sense, because I have struggled with that thing for years. I finally decided, much like Shag, it was a pillow that made, made to look like a heater or a mini furnace. I know that doesn't make any sense, but neither does this art. Giffen was starting to enter his indecipherable art period, and it's showing here. That's true, brother. Uh, yeah, I mean the bag of charcoal, I guess, but like, there's no writing on it. Like, there's no like brand name, so I, I'm still calling shenanigans on that. Well, the the majority vote, and we're going to get to this in a bit, is definitely a charcoal bag. Um, and now that I know that, I I see it. But someone I mean, they had to tell me that's what it was, though. It goes. Uh, I'm looking forward to the loose leaf. I think it's fun to go back and look over my binders and see how my young brain worked as far as organizing the characters. The artwork is indeed gorgeous. See, there's a vote and thumbs up for the loose leaf editions. Way to go, Chris. Uh, Siskoid from our network and the Siskoid's blog of Giggery and the does the Invasion podcast. Oh, Hot Move, my favorite show on the network, including our own Lonely Hearts Romance Comics podcast. He wrote in to say you made a big deal of the ghost being subprint free, but so is Axis America. 
In the Ghost case, at least, regardless of why the art was originally commissioned, it's interesting that he's a fading character and the background is solid, whereas most characters are solid with transparent surprint backgrounds. Yeah, that's clever. Okay. One could almost argue that it uh, makes sense. Um, he says, I agree with Frank. It burns that Dumas was only ever cool under Doug Rice's pencils, and that almost tr- that's almost true of Mark Shaw's Manhunter costume as well. I disagree with Frank. Ah, Calgon, take me away. I'm gangbuster, though. Love that era of Superman. Uh, I liked Jose, and uh, I liked the twist with Superman in the role. Then heard from our buddy Benton Gray, who's currently doing a series of posts on his blog called Into the Bronze Age. And he says, it was another very enjoyable post. Gents, I appreciate the mention of my little project, which is off to a swimming start. Then, because I like symmetry, right after Benton Gray, I put Martin Gray. And uh, he does the Too Dangerous for a Girl blog. And he wrote in with several comments. And he said, uh, in one of them, I'm with Rob. I prefer the original format of Who's Who rather than having the, the having to faff. Oh, he's so I funny. love that word. He's so funny with his weird Britishisms and living in Scotland. You know he lives in Naboo? Did you know that? He's actually related to Queen Amidala from Star Wars. He says, I prefer the original format rather than having to faff about with the chunky folders and having to put pages in order. There's no better ordering system than alphabetical. You know what, Martin? You can put your entries in alphabetical order. Why is that so hard? And he says, love, love, love Amazing Man's costume. It's like the All-Star Squadron teammate tarantulas and being too stylish for the time, but it's gorgeous. He says, uh, Blackhawk, a strapping man in leather with a peaked cap. What's not to like? Oh, God. And then regarding Blackhawks, I say, why no English stereotype? I love that Martin leaned into the skid there. I thought that was great. (laughs) I don't know, Blackhawk. Everything's gone all blobby. (laughs) It's all tits up. Um, Chunk was great. Dropping him along with the magnificent Mary West was one of the excellent Mark Wade's few bad moves when he took over the new Flash. All right, this is a whole lot of... Okay, what he's saying is dropping Chunk and Mary West was a bad idea, even though Mark Wade's run was really good. So, I can see that. Yeah, absolutely. He says, uh, Gargawaks, because comics need more green fatties. <laughs> and then uh, he corrects me here. He's really hung up on this thing, too, uh, about Hal Jordan. I talked about Hal Jordan and the whole Paul Manning thing. Because remember, Salak last issue went to the future. Right. It took on the identity of Paul Manning and all this stuff. All right. So he says, Hal didn't take on the identity of Paul Manning. He had it imposed upon him when his memory vanished when he was pulled to the future. Yes, I knew that. I understood that. I'm sorry I didn't articulate that. It's just the Paul Manning crap makes no friggin' sense. It's redunculous, and I can't believe they've let it hang on past the Silver Age. So, love you too. I uh, heard from our friend Stella from the Batgirl to Oracle, uh, a Batgirl, I'm sorry, Batgirl to Oracle, a Barbara Gordon podcast. Uh, I talked her into trying who's who uh, during the update 87 era. (laughs) She gave me a bunch of crap about it. Wouldn't do it. Wouldn't do it. Wouldn't do it. I pressured her. I actually blackmailed her. She finally listened to an episode and she actually genuinely fell in love with the show. So she wrote in, she says, I had my doubts, but who's who 88 is every bit as good as who's who 87. I was surprised to hear about the history of the green flame slash green fury. Not aware of this beyond her just being fire. I also, uh, always associated fire with her best friend forever, Ice. But I was, wa- and I was wondering if you knew when they first crossed paths and how their friendship began. Will it be covered on that JLA podcast if one is ever created? Good question. <sighs> nice um, leading question there, Stella. <laughs> she's such a good friend to me. Uh, I can't tell you the first time that Green Fury and Ice Maiden met. But I would assume it was probably in the pages of the Super Friends. Yeah, because they were part of the Global Guardians. Well, I don't know if they were ever together, though. It's like they friends. were. 
Well, I, they weren't regarded as friends because there was okay. virtually no characterization in that book. But they were part of the team together. So, yeah, I think the first time they were ever characterized as friends was probably in the Justice League International series. But um, that will be a good research project for me as we move along through the JLI podcast. Uh, that would be Justice League International, Bwahaha podcast, in case you haven't heard of it. I think we got that. She also says, thank you so much for the work you put into this show. <laughs> I have learned a great deal and really enjoy it because of that. When I got back into comics during Civil War and Infinite Crisis, the DC and Marvel encyclopedias, as well as Wikipedia, really helped me figure out who the characters are, and I appreciate character history. Keep it up. Awesome. Thank you, Stella. Her- heard from our buddy Wolfgang Hartz. says, I wonder if Amazing Man and Amazing Man ever teamed up, and if not, they should have. <laughs> I agree. Sadly, no, but yeah, it did not happen. Great observation. We received a dissertation from Jeff Nettleton, and he said regarding the atom on Felix Faust's shoulder on the cover, he goes, maybe the atom was about to stick that sword in, he had in Faust's ear. That would have been the best. You know, Walking Dead style. Uh, then Blackthorn, minus the weapons, looks like a lady or two I used to see outside the naval base when I was stationed in Charleston, <laughs> South Carolina. You know, you know, from afar. Not that I dated them. Honest, I swear. <laughs> Got to spend uh, that per diem somewhere. Right. Oh, God. He says, Crimson Avenger. Mike Gustavich was a fine inker, and I enjoyed his Justice Machine series, uh, more the Comico series than the earlier Noble Comics or later Innovation or Millennium series. But he was not a very consistent penciler. Hmm, fair enough. Now, this is the information on Tom Artist. Or Artist. The guy, artist. Drew, Tom artist. Art, artist, yeah. He drew a lot of Secret Origins and he drew a lot of Who's Who. Tom Artist was a local artist from Springfield, Illinois. And then Tom says he lived, he lived, in, uh, I'm sorry, he lives in Champaign, but lived in Springfield for several years. Tom had done uh, some work for smaller companies, including one of the Judge Dredd American publishers, but started to get some work from DC. He improved a lot. He worked on the early issues of The Web from Impact, uh, as well as Tailgunner Joe. He also self-published one issue of his own take on the Black Terror, though it was pretty rough. The first half's fully inked, but the second half was obviously not fully completed. He had problems meeting deadlines, which killed his chances of working regularly at DC. Then he goes on a little later to say, he was a nice enough guy, but it just seemed like the lack of discipline to be successful in comics, and he passed away nearly 10 years ago. Hmm. That's very sad. Because I like the stuff he produced. It would have been interesting to see how he developed. Regarding the ghost, he takes me to task, uh, like Cisco did. He says, but Rob, it's a reversal. The background is solid, and the character is the serpent. Well, maybe. (laughs) He talks about Harlequin. It looks like she's been attacked by the cover of a 1960s DC comic. That, does not remember the checkerboard? Mm-hmm. It says, uh, the image really hurt my eyes. Her appearance in Infinity, Inc. really hurt my brain. Then we received, um, what's, what's longer than a dissertation? Um, a treatise, maybe? Manifesto, I think, manifesto? is really fitting yeah. for Frank. Okay, we received a manifesto from Diablo Frank from the Rolled Spine Podcast Network. So that includes like the Idlehead of Diablo Podcast, the Power of the Atom Podcast, Diana Prince, the new Wonder Woman Podcast, Marvel Superheroes Podcast, the Under Guys Podcast. And that's just his podcast. I'm not even reading his blogs. From him, coming from his unheated shack out in the Pacific Northwest. Aw. You know what's really sad and crazy? I've actually met him now. I have sat down. I have had a meal with him and his, and his lady friend. And, and then 16 hours later, you woke up. No, no it, was, it was a very, very pleasant experience. It's like he gets, becomes a different person when he gets in front of a microphone or a keyboard. So anyway, he says, I was very complimentary of Ty Templeton's work on the Blue Devil's Secret Origin. In sharp contrast to my opinion on the Who's Who Update 88 covers, which I thought were the worst run of any of the series. Wow. Really, Frank? 
tight templates are the worst? Because, you know, in my mind, I was thinking the Ernie Colon one. And then he actually comes back with that. He goes, at least Ernie Colon was interesting. <laughs> at least Ernie Colon was interestingly bad. <laughs> no, Frank, no. Oh, oh. Stop it. Uh, he says, regarding power of the atom, he says, it was arguably the worst thing that ever happened to Ray Palmer, which is saying something. It ran only 18 issues at a time, but 25 are virtually guaranteed for an ongoing series. And despite the new DC, there's no stopping us now hype, felt entirely like a bland Bronze Age throwback. I understand the loose hair look for sort of the atom, whether they do wearing a mask at all under the circumstances. But here it's merely a harbinger of the 90s cliche of ripping up a quality Silver Age design to make a square hero look hipper, followed inevitably by a superfluous brown vest. They didn't stop there, though, making one of the few old school heroes to wear pants, take up the hoary underwear on the outside look, presumably to bring him closer to his short-lived animated incarnation. I want the record to be perfect, made perfectly clear that I did not recommend this book to Shag, and in fact tried to warn him of its meh, if you can get them cheap pseudo-merits. I think he actually sent me skywriting telling me I needed to buy Power of the Atom. I'm pretty sure it was skywriting, if I remember right. So, yeah, I don't, I don't know what Frank's talking about there. Um, now, it's funny, I had deja vu for a second there, with reading that quote, and then I realized where I've heard it before. It was on the upcoming podcast... <laughs> Uh, well, you know, just go back and listen to the Temple of Doom cast, okay, folks? It was released, uh, let's just say, on the first day of April on our feed, the Temple of Doom cast, and you'll actually hear that quote read, and uh, it's worth it. Uh, let's see. Then he goes on to say, I've never been overly fond of Steve Irwin, um, and he's not talking about the Crocodile Hunter. He goes, but Al Vey is one of the greatest inkers in the industry. And I'll tell you what, folks, this is Shag. Frank is right. Al Vey is an amazing inker. And then he goes on to say, the only time I've ever read and enjoyed The Flash regularly on purpose was during the um, Mike Barron-Jackson Geis run. <laughs> Not a lot of people stand up for that run, so it's kind of interesting to see someone do it, especially someone as crazy as Frank. <laughs> Let's see. He said, I left one of <laughs> – okay. This is about Dr. Fate. <laughs> Got to follow along, though, okay, folks? Um, I left one of a series of long comments on the Secret Origins podcast about Dr. Fate. An abridged version is – I want Shag to take everything he's relayed about the 80s series and chuck it in the bin, along with any further electric boogaloo jokes. Because <laughs> I always say Dr. Fate 2, electric boogaloo. Given the revamp, Dr. Fate 2, the quickening seems more apropos anyway. That's actually a funny joke. That's clever. Then he goes on to say, like Amazing Man, is Dr. Mi is Dr. Mist an especially compelling character with a catalog of beloved stories? No. Is he an exceptionally powerful black superhero unburdened with the legacy of a white forebearer and embedded in it for decades in a major comic book universe in desperate need of diversity? Why, yes, he is. And that's my primary point of interest. So that's a fair point, you know, that they created a, a, a uh, multi-cultural character that didn't have his roots in a white man. So, yeah, mm -hmm. that's fair. Scrolling through Frank's stuff. This could take a while. My finger's actually getting tired scrolling through it all. Then he goes on to say, Gargwax is one of the only Doom Patrol villains I can maybe name on a good day. <laughs> That's good. Hey, come on, man. you got to be able to name the Brotherhood of Evil. Come on. Everyone knows uh, Monsignor Malak. <laughs> yeah, Monsieur Malak. Come on. <laughs> then he goes on to say, until I glanced at the credit, I had no idea that Mike Collins drew Godiva. And it's far better than and doesn't remotely resemble a familiar itis, I tend to consign to the Alex Saviak spectrum of resigned tolerance. In other words, what he means is he usually puts Mike uh, Collins in the same boat as Alex Saviak, which he repeatedly tells us how much he, he thinks is like a boring artist. Then he says, given uh, Godiva's limited exposure and overall look, I assume she's a terrible character, but she looks hot. 
uh, and uh, an empowering being with unlimited potential or whatever I need to say to not sound totally like I'm objectifying her, even though I doubt she's worth the effort. <laughs> yes, Frank, it's okay to occasionally say somebody's hot. I know a guy who gets away with it all the time, so don't worry about it. Uh, then he says, Joe Staden isn't a favorite, though it's funny how I'm fine with him drawing stories for Jon Stewart or Guy Gardner, but he's the artist of my most pronounced hatred of Hal Jordan. Very interesting. You know, I would agree with you. When he draws Hal Jordan, it, like, I, I can't stand his version of Hal Jordan, and when I think about stuff I don't like about Hal Jordan, I think about that period. But, you know, I don't mind him drawing Jon Stewart. I don't like his Guy Gardner, but I don't, I don't mind him drawing Jon Stewart. Hmm. He goes on to say, I agree that Mark Wade pulled a Roy Thomas and turned Who's Who into a catalog of the changes made to the characters in the Secret Origins title that he also edited. That's a very interesting observation, and yes, he's right. Basically, the, this, this update especially appears to just be characters that either have something going on in the DC Universe right now or are a Golden Age character from the, from the Secret, Origins podcast, uh, Secret Origins comic. Wouldn't you agree? Yeah, absolutely. So, and he says, I have hardbound copies of the updates sitting on my bookshelf collecting dust while I schlepped to the comic room to pull individual issues of the main series out of the lawn boxes. So just reinforcing that he, uh, he loves the originals but not the updates as much. And then, let's see, Ryan Daly came back and said, uh, oh, sorry, not, this, this is a totally separate comment. Ryan Daly says, <laughs> this is like he's having a conversation. Now remember, Ty, don't make Green Lantern, Green Arrow, or Firestorm too big. We need to save a lot of room on the cover for Dr. Mist and Felix Faust. That's great. And then he says, uh, I was worried you guys were going to forget to mention Extreme Justice during the Amazing Man, Amazing Man segment. Whew, close call. <laughs> Thanks, Ryan. Um, considering you know, everything we put into the show and how you stole our shtick and stole our audience for your Secret Origins podcast, I appreciate your two little jokey tweets. Thanks, man. Really appreciate it. Uh, Sean Bomba wrote, all right, finally a podcast I can become obsessed with, Fire and Water, Who's Who. Then Tom Panarese said, seconded. Uh, the Shag and Rob make the serial, which is another podcast, look like a middle schooler's badly done Wikipedia search. <laughs> and I never listened to serial, but apparently it's very, very, very popular. Yes, there are podcasts about that podcast. Really? Yeah, there are serial shows about serial, so I'm expecting someone to do a bifurcation, you know, socially dissection of our show talking about who's who. That would be really well, cool. Well, perhaps you should listen to the Temple of Doom cast for something right in, along those lines. Well, that's true. That's true. Uh, David Sunnyboy Gutierrez wrote in to say, Kenig is Russian for king, Shag. He loves to get corrections in. He just lives for that. Oh, yeah. He, he loves to get digs in me. Yeah. He texts, you know, he texts me stuff all the time. Oh, yeah, me too. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I mean, he's trying to make me cry myself to sleep is what he's trying to do. He sent me stuff. a bunch of stuff today about Highlander. I'm like, you're just drunk, dude. What are you doing? Uh, Al Girding. <laughs> from mind that he's on Pacific time, so that's the middle of the day. I know. <laughs> yeah, get a job. Al Girding uh, from the All-Star Comics Review podcast says, who put green flame in the back? Curb appeal, people. Curb appeal. That's great. I love that. Our buddy Gord, Gord Tolton, who is uh, – didn't you say he's a Star, Star Trek Expanded Universe character? <laughs> yes. He says, uh, I just want one of the Blackhawks to reach over and cuff Danny Chase in the head and tell him to go grease the landing gear. This is all comments from the cover, by the way. But Dale Russell wrote in and said, great show. It was too short. You should make these longer. <laughs> Thanks, Dale. Ask oh, God, oh, God almighty. <laughs> Legacy Brand Comics says, another fun and informative Who's Who episode, guys. Gareth Oliver wrote in to say, Checkmate have actually appeared in live action before. And he says, we thinks it was in season eight of Smallville. Huh. Imagine that. 
I wonder how the costume, I mean, I wonder if they did the full-on checkmate costumes that we love so much. That'd be awesome. Uh, Michael Wagner wrote in to say, take a shot every time Shag mentions the JLI podcast during Who's Who. Oh, boy. And alcohol poisoning. <laughs> Chuck Rodriguez says, I'm really looking forward to you guys covering the Loose Leaf Who's Who. Woohoo! I really enjoy that version. There you go, Chuck. Way to go. Andy Capella said, sorry, Rob, but Loose Leaf for life! Hector Negrete, who apparently is just uh, horribly misguided, uh, posted a composite Superman picture and tagged both Rob and I. Oh, Hector. Oh, Hector. I, f- I fear for you. Uh, Alex Bowman wrote in, Ahem. Lawn mowing is about to start. I need my Who's Who podcast to listen to. Yes, I am one of the people who is a fan of Helix, I-5, Creeper, Danny Chase, Composite Superman, and the Forever People. No, he wrote, he wrote Teth Forever People. Yeah, well, okay, I was correcting you. Uh, well, that's, a, that's an internet thing. Right, yeah, yeah, to internet, yeah. Uh, I, Alex, putting the Creeper in that list is not fair. That really is not fair. Come on. Well, I mean, because Creeper's, Creeper's not nearly as cool as Danny Chaser Composite. Oh, yeah, yeah, that's exactly what I meant, sure. Yeah, oof. All right, Kyle Benning from the King Size Comics, Giant Size Fun, and Superman and Captain Marvel Power Hour. He says, you brought your A-games to this episode. Your vocabulary was top-notch, and Rob's humor was on point. Great start to the 88 update series. I'm really glad he listened to the first episode of this uh, this run. Paul Hicks from the Waiting, Doom Frog, Waiting for Doom podcast created his own meme, which is hilarious. It's a picture of uh, a, a Doom Patrol villain. It says, who's the lamest Doom Patrol vi- villain? Don't gargawax me. <laughs> Oh, wait, that's from Paul Hicks. Screw him. Never mind. Oh, that's right. Clinton Robinson from Comic, uh, Coffee and Comics Blog wrote in, Firestorm? Blackhawk? Green Arrow? Who are these morts? Now, Danny Chase, there's a real hero. <laughs> See, he gets in the spirit of this. He's, he's got it. Bradley Null posted several pages over on Instagram with the tag of FW Podcast. Thank you for that. Thank you, Bradley. Comics Couplets also posted over in Instagram and, and Twitter. This is fascinating. This I don't know who Comics Couplets is. This is what they do is uh, this. This is how they describe themselves: regurgitating all the children's books I've read the past couple years into tiny Twitter-friendly poems about some famous comic characters. So he posted this on Instagram about Duchess. He posted our Duchess entry and tagged us and says, "I was once a furious banded new god, then later found myself with a brand new squad." <laughs> How fascinating. What a cool little thing to do. Then uh, Diablo Frank on Twitter mentioned, he goes, he falls between both Shag and Rob on the Who's Who Loose Leaf. He goes, 90s is my comic universe jam, but trying to follow along with the show is a nightmare. And, uh, and, and then uh, Comic Couplets came back responding, he says he loved the format, but character choice is very selective, mostly a snapshot of then current DC Universe. And, and, you know, it's a fair question. A lot of people are asking about how we're going to handle the loose leaves. I think what, much like we're going to do with the 89 annual, maybe what we'll do is we'll post the listing of characters, which is just on the cover. Um, maybe we'll post that in advance of each episode so people can figure out which entries to be ready to look at. Maybe. I, I would assume we should just follow the order that they were published. That's what I'm saying. No, that's yeah. what we're yeah. going to do. Mm-hmm. But to help people along, because most people have organize them alphabetically by, you know, whatever, their their shoe size or something, because uh, everyone has their own format for how they put it, it would be helpful to let them know in advance which ones we're covering, so we could just post the cover a day or two in advance, I'm saying. And I'm saying these loosely people got themselves into this, let them get themselves out. Oh my gosh, fine. Uh, Gregor Rougeau, <clears throat> he, uh, he did us a solid and shared a bunch of really awesome DC comic house ads from this era on Twitter. And one of them is the house ad for Who's Who Update 88. It's a great Ty Templeton piece. And it says, instead of Who's Who, it says, Who's Great in 88? And it's got um, 
I mean, it's a really nice piece. It's got the, everyone. It's got Checkmate and Laurie Lamaris and the Crimson Avenger and the New Guardians and Joker and Booster Gold and the Weird and Mr. Mitzi's Pitalik and Captain Atom and uh, is that Silver Siren or whatever that – who was that bird chick? Silver know. Swan. Silver Swan. Um, uh, anyways, it's a really nice piece, and uh, it's great. Update 1988. Four issues starting in April. Then we heard from our buddy Michel Fief, who's a comics professional. And he was tweeting. He was tweeting about us. Thank you so much. He said, "Covering my favorite era of anything ever. These guys are doing the Lord's work." <laughs> <laughs> and uh, regarding Ty Templeton, he says, uh, "Ty Templeton inked Tom Artis on Tailgunner Joe, and Artis was great. Uh, rest in peace." And he loved that we gave uh, Ty Templeton his proper due respect. And he says, "The New Guardians never looked better," <laughs> which I don't know if that's faint praise or not. I'm not really sure, <laughs> but. Then over on the JLA podcast uh, Facebook page, I posted that image of fire from Who's Who, and I asked everyone, what is Green Flame doing? What is she leaning on? And pretty much unanimously came back with his a bag of charcoal. Um, pretty much everyone got to that point. The only other one that was different, really, for the most part, was Kichi Baker, where he said, she's leaning on something? Sorry? I was distracted. What was the question? <laughs> and then on the web, uh, Trey Hooks posted an article on uh, spinnerrack.blogspot.com about, called Podcast Proposed as Perfect. And the Who's Who podcast was amongst those. So thank you so much for that. That's amazing. Thank you. Uh, these people shared our stuff on their own social media timeline, Facebook, Twitter, Tumblr, Google+. So one of them is Ty Templeton, Woo-hoo! which was really cool. Uh, good thing I said nice things. Now, I've loved Ty. I've loved him all the way back since Stig's Inferno. So I'm really happy to see him do these covers. I wish he had done some, some of the internal uh, listings like Justice League International, like well, other than those. I mean, other, I okay. Let me let me. First of all, I'm very tired. It's very late. We've been talking forever. I meant other listings with characters that he wasn't associated with. You know what I mean? Like they wish they'd done some retro listings or something like that. But yeah, what are you gonna do? Anyway, we also got the, the stuff uh, attention from hashtag No Laurel No Arrow, <laughs> Aaron Head Moss, Adam Deschanel, Adam Addy Botstein, Al Sedano, Alan Middleton, All Star Comics Review Podcast, Amandus, Ange, Oh yeah, Brave and the Bold, Between the Pages, Bill Bear, Buck Rowlett, Buck Rowlett, Butterfly Blocks, Butterfly Box, Chad Belkman, Chuck Rodriguez. Cleophis Randolph, Clinton Robinson, Coffee and Comics Blog, Comic Reflections, Comic Book Guy 89, Comics in Color, Comic Tweets, Craig 101, Dale Russell, David A. Pascarella, David Gutierrez, DC Comics Fans, DC TV Podcasts, Diablo Frank, Diacoa 21, Dr. G. Nerdologist, Dread, Flair Joe, F. Yeah Nerdery, uh, Georgia McKenzie, Granado Fan, Greg A., Headcast Network, Highball 2814, Highball 2814, Hicks, Jared West, <laughs> I just Jer- got that. thank you, Jeremy Brown, JLI Podcast, Joe Slab, Keith G. Baker, Con L, Cord Industries, Kyle Petit, Legends of Tomorrow, Lesbian Comic Lover, I gotta look that one up, Lily, Wan- Lily Wanag, or Lee Wanag, sorry, Lucian Desar, Lucky Jinxed, Luke Dobb, Mario, Max Romero, Michael Bailey, Michael Wagner, Mikey Flash, Mr. Perturb, Misty Delights, those are great, those are great cookies, Osang, Petro Blacksimov, PRVD, Malaline, Richard Field, Roel Morillo, Scott A. Rosenberg, Silver and Gold Podcast, Siskoid, Son of Cthulhu, Sonorousness, Speed Force, Stephanie, Superman, yeah, yeah it was very nice, Sin, The 108th Sage, The Five Earths Project, The Flash Podcast, The Lantern Cast, Trekker Talk, Two True Freaks, Van Z, Vishnu Ganon, Waiting for Doom, Warlord Worlds, Willie Arborough, and Zegas. Woohoo! All right. 
Now is our new segment uh, we just introduced last episode called Zoom's Who. This is Zoom. You can always addendum to the definitive director of the DC Universe. Uh, Zoom is received his yellow dot award uh, emeritus, I guess. So therefore, he now has his own section on the show. And he's given us, what, three different ones to talk about this time? Mm-hmm, yeah. Mm-hmm. So I'll cover the first one if you want to cover the next one. Sure. Uh, the first one is Master Villain. Now, this is a character who only appeared in two. I'm sorry, in one two-part Flash story in the '70s. He looks absolutely ridiculous, but Zoom was inspired by just the fun look of it. It's based on a, a character drawn by Irv Novik, and then of course Zoom's done a little bit of work with it. He's got a green bodysuit with a big yellow cape, giant collar, a big yellow M on his chest with a, with orange and red highlights and brown boots. I mean, just bald as a cue ball. Looks like Rob. And uh, in the background, he's drawing a picture, and you see him yelling, and you see him fighting the Flash, and uh, it's just, it's super fun, and it's really it, it picks out on a really really obscure period, uh, and you can see you know of the, of the Flash, and he's using his atomic energy fist to you know attack, and it's just a lot of fun. I've ne- never heard of this guy. I was like, Zoom, who is this guy? <laughs> I just never read that issue with Flash, so I had no idea. I had no idea. Yeah, absolutely yeah, no idea. Yep, yep, yep. He also sent his listings a one page featuring two listings. Each character got a half page. Topo, Aquaman's sidekick, who first appeared in Adventure Comics 229. The art is by Ramona Fraden and Zoom Yukinori. It's wonderful. I love it. Topo gets his own listing. There's a shot of him helping Aquaman defeat a villain and then him playing, uh, being like a one-man band thing where he's playing the drums and the guitar. It's completely insane. I love it. I love that Topo was such a good friend to Aquaman that I'm really proud that he got a listing. And then the second half of the page, this thing is as close to Nirvana as I'm going to get. It is a half page. You, you requested this. Very I absolutely much. requested this. This is a half page. I would not request it if I really thought he would do it because I feel guilty that he puts, he takes time away from his family. Just show up and things. Huh? Just shut up and describe it. Hey, I'll, I do, get to this. I'll do the damn show that way I want to do it. Uh, <laughs> this is a half-page listing for the TRS-80 Computer Whiz Kids Woo-hoo! from those Radio Shack comics starring <laughs> Superman. Their first appearance is in Superman and the Computers That Saved Metropolis, where they help Superman defeat, I think, Master Disa- Major Disaster. With, oh, really? Yeah, I think he's the villain with the help of computers that have, I think, uh, up to 8K of RAM. Right. And, uh, <laughs> it's like, I love this listing so much, I really do want to just turn it into a T-shirt. You and, absolutely should. And Zoom thought I meant the artwork because he was helpful enough to say, I'll send you the TIFF file of the artwork. I want the whole listing as my T-shirt. <laughs> I want the whole thing. The Topo part as well? Or yeah, like... no, no, just the TRS-80 WizKids. I love this thing. so like It's just so fantastic. Those comics I... were so freaking goofy. And I just I... love that they're in Who's Who now. I think this is one of my favorite pages he's ever produced because I love Topo. And I love Topo's like flexing, like making a muscle up above. Yeah. And then the, I, I don't think I've ever read the TRS 80 comic, which is crazy. <laughs> but because I, I actually owned a TRS 80 computer in the 80s, we had 16K RAM, right? And then we, we were badass because we upgraded to 32K RAM. So we were, you know, look out. We were processing power that twice the rest of the, the country. And, uh, my dad was a big believer in getting in computers early, so that's where I learned uh, my early basic programming. All I will say is 10, Zoom Yukonuri is awesome. 20, <laughs> go to 10, run. <laughs> oh, my God. That's brilliant. 
Uh, you can make an anthem out of that. Uh, and the last thing he sent us was this great picture. He had to design this. It is a you know I always talk about the editorial page on Who's Who, and uh, he has mocked up an editorial page for whom for Zooms Who. And it says Zooms Who's Wise and What's and Wise. It's fantastic. He's done the inside cover, so we are that much closer to an official Zooms Who uh, book that we can all Kickstarter. So I can't wait. Amazing. Uh, and then finally, we have a Yellow Dot Award going to our pal, Jose Rivera. You probably need to explain what the Yellow Dot Award is. Yeah, well, it's, it's, the, it's, the, it's for meritorious service in the, in, the, in the Who's Who fandom based on the original Who's Who listings but had the yellow dots in the, uh, the frame of the page. Everybody knows what they are at this point. Uh, I mean, you've heard of Oscars. It's a yellow dot. Come on. Jose Rivera, and he says uh, he, uh, he sent us this, these photos. He says, in honor of the Who's Who podcast, I had my run of Who's Who's issues bound in three hardcovers. They came out great. And I put in CDs of the episodes of your show and the inside covers. And he sent photos of these gigantic encyclopedia-sized who's who books featuring the covers. And they're wraparound. And, and then on the inside, as he said, is a little sleeve where he puts the CDs for the episodes of the books that we cover. These things are just absolutely gorgeous. I mean, they're like... They, they, they will survive the apocalypse. They're so poorly put together. And the fact that our Who's Who shows get to, 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 to anywhere spend time with the actual Who's Who is, is quite a tribute to uh, our efforts here. So thank you, Jose. You win the Yellow Dot Award. That's awesome. And did you see what he did with the covers, with the alphabetical listing on the cover? He actually changed it to rather than being the individual characters, it's covering, telling you what issues yes, are in there. Yes, that's right. I mean, it's, right. yes, you have won a Yellow Dot Award, sir. Congratulations. He, he wrote us a long time ago telling us he was going to do this. And we made him a commitment that said, if you really do that, you will absolutely win, earn a Yellow Dot Award from us. And so there you go, pal. They're beautiful books. They, whoever, I forget, he, he told us the name of the company. Oh, I've got all of this. I've oh, got okay. all this saved on my desktop. Because they do beautiful work. I keep hovering around what I want to get bound in. Like yeah, one day I convince I myself of this, you know, I want some firestorms. Or like, no, 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 wait, I want to get some, you know, Atari Force. Well, I should probably read them first, you know, or like whatever. And right. Yeah. Beautiful, it's, it's beautiful stuff, stuff, Jose. So. Thank you. All right, folks, that is going to do it. There, Whoa. that that is another episode of the Who's Who podcast in the books. Um, well, normally we tell you to go out of the Tumblr, but instead go to fireandwaterpodcast.com. Rob, why don't you tell the people at home how they can get in touch with us if they want to share their thoughts? You can always email us, which is fireandwaterpodcast at comcast.net. But the easier way is to go to fireandwaterpodcast.com and just use the contact page. There's a there's a field there. You can just fill out fill it out, and it gets messages right to us. And so, why, that's uh, the better way of doing it. I'm going to argue with Rob because I like to. I think the best way to share your thoughts is actually to post it on the post on our page. So you go to the, the fire, go to the fire and water podcast, go to shows, go to who's who, go to, you know, update 88 episode two and post a comment there because then other people can reply to your comments. You can actually have a conversation. Whereas instead, if you do the contact form, it's just going to go into our email and then Rob's not going to read it till it's time to do the show. So, well, that's true. Cause Rob's inherently lazy. I didn't read this issue of who's who until a minute before we recorded, even though we had two months. I, I believe it. I fully believe it. And that's probably why you kept saying, hey, I need another 15 minutes. Yeah, so. that's, yep, that's what it was. Yep. <laughs> All right, folks. Well, um, if you'd like to find my friend Rob, and I use the term loosely, on the Internet, you can find him on Twitter under Aquaman Shrine or Film and Water Pod or Pod Dylan. 
or, well, now I was going to make up a bunch, but I'll stop. You can also find them under FW Podcast, which is our network Twitter feed. You can find both of us on Facebook as well. You can find him under Aquaman Shrine or Fire and Water Podcast on Facebook. You can find me as Firestorm Van on Twitter and Facebook, uh, also with uh, the Fire and Water Podcast, which has a Facebook and a Twitter account. And um, am I forgetting anything? I think that's going to do it. All right, folks, let's wrap this up. Let's get that cold medicine in my system and try and get a good night's sleep. All right, folks, until next time. Who's next? Aquaman and Superman, Animal Man and Plastic Man, Firestorm and Nuclear Man, Batman and Hawkman, 2D Man and Hour Man. Who are all these people, man? They're all part of the Ultra Boy and Booster Gold, Lightning Lass and Hippolyta, Phantom Stranger, Etrick and Arisia and Woozy Winks. Hey, hey, hey. What? What about that one guy? What guy? Mr. Pretzel, Mr. Lipstick, Mr. Mitzelfuzzle? Mr. Mitzi's Pitlick? Yeah, him. He's also part of the DC. Who's who? Aw, man. We forgot Slipknot. Hang on a second. You you mean to tell me that 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 down there you've got fish business going on? What'd you expect, silly? Oh. <laughs> what, 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 but wait, when 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 you get up on land, you you grow legs, right? Of course I do. Oh, thank God. Uh, yep, the legs turn human, but believe you me, baby, the hoo-ha's all mackerel. 